Hey, my name is Rebecca and welcome to the Capture Hope podcast. My husband Josh and I interview people with stories of being brought from darkness into light by the love of Jesus. We are so glad you've joined us today. I wanted to let you know that while these are real people and real stories, we don't use explicit language, but may talk about content too graphic for some younger listeners. Enjoy the show. The topic that we're going to be talking about today is very sensitive, and it is hard for some to hear because for some of us, we have had to live what we're going to talk about, and it's in the field of child abuse. I would hope that you would take the time to listen There's a difference between being a victim, being a survivor, and being victorious. And I would hope that you'd stick around to see what the victorious looks like. Hey, so I am Rebecca Edwards. And I'm Josh Edwards. And I'm Valerie Watley. And uh, Josh and I run Capture Hope, and we're here interviewing Valerie. I met Valerie three years ago, and it was kind of a weird situation. I didn't realize who she was. I'd met her one time, and I knew I was supposed to be telling people stories, and I know that God led me to you, Valerie, (laughs) because I had no idea what your story was. I just knew what you did. And I remember sitting in this Irish restaurant in downtown Franklin, and I think it was about three hours long that I just stared like mouth gaping wide open at you because I couldn't believe that anyone had ever been through what you had. And we got to the end of it and I realized, well, I forgot to record that and I took no notes. (laughs) So um, anyway, yeah, I am obviously really glad that we became friends. And I interviewed you because I knew that you ran an organization called CARE. Mm -hmm. So to introduce, can you tell us just a little bit about that before we get started? Um, CARE is a nonprofit as of March the 14th um, of last year. They, um, the company itself, the day-to-day running is done by children. The children that run the organization are in Murray County, Tennessee, and most all of them have come from Central High School. Um, Everything that we do, our directive, our day-to-day push is based upon what the children are discovering on their own free time and what they want to learn, and we apply experiential learning um, to help to kind of understand what the kids want us to do, how they want to learn, so that we can then help them get to wherever they want to go using the topic that CARE, uh, the foundational piece of CARE is is mounted on. Yeah, and so when I first asked to interview you, all I knew about CARE was that it had something to do with child abuse. That was was it. I think I Facebook messaged you. And so (laughs) um, actually in the last few years, actually I said three, it might act be like four, four and a half, something like that. So in the four and a half years since we met, I'm helping write your book. And it's like a biography of a lot of stuff in your life and how that led up to what you do now. Mm -hmm. And so basically you're getting a rundown of the book. And so we encourage you to keep an eye out. (laughs) Um, But yeah, the just to tease a little bit, we won't cover this in this episode, um, but it'll be in next week's release. But 
one of my favorite things about what God has done in you in your life is that you learned like from a really young age that people were cruel, they were disinterested in you, they were not worthy of trust, you know, and even today, like the God's gift list is this thing that you do and that your kids are so passionate about that do care. And um, it basically just turns the enemies like work against you on its head. Like, I, I mean, you really were taught that people weren't to be trusted. And mm-hmm. God has basically sent you dozens and hundreds, you know, yeah. of people that want to support and care for you. And so I love that. Um so, yeah, I guess we will just get started by the very beginning. So tell me a little bit about the history of your family as it started in Tennessee, like before you were born. My, um, what we're best known for is if you'll <laughs> go to downtown Franklin, Tennessee, off of Five Points, you will walk into a new museum that was opened last year in 2017 called the Old Old Jail. It is the headquarter base for the Williamson County Heritage Foundation. The entire bottom floor of the Heritage Foundation's museum is dedicated to my granddad's mother and his older brother. They uh, were sentenced in Tennessee, um, found guilty of murder, and sentenced to the electric chair. A year after they went into prison, um, the new governor that came in overturned it and gave them life in prison. And they're famous for nearly decapitating someone in Franklin, Tennessee, and leaving her body underneath a tree at the old Franklin High School. So... A little bit of dysfunction, you would say, in your family tree, maybe? Well, I think everybody has um, a little bit of skeletons in their closet, and it's just one of those things that we don't realize when we're going through life that our actions today will reflect for generations to come. And I don't think sometimes we really take hold and ownership of who and what we are and understand the importance of what God is going to do. And how that's going to affect children in the downline and the ugly brush that it's going to paint you with. Yeah. Well, as I was writing the first chapter of your book, it's about very early on, like birth. And I remember sitting in our living room writing and I was weeping, like brought to tears. Josh couldn't even read it in one sitting yeah, because. Yeah, couldn't even finish it. Yeah, it was just so sad. So. Tell me a little bit about like what you learned later about your first just few days, few weeks in the hospital. Um, I had turned 18 and had finally been able to leave the house and not be brought back against my will. And I needed to have a copy of my birth certificate. Um, I went to my parents' house out in College Grove in the middle of the night, woke my parents up and stood outside and waited for my dad to find my birth certificate for me. And I could hear my birth mother in the home cussing and yelling, and it's late, and this and another. She doesn't need it. Why does she have to have it? That What all, you know, you're going to have when somebody's not happy about something. And I took it home because I was living at the time with my, um, my granddad and my grandmother. And the next day, or... Within like 48 hours from getting it, I looked at it and I noticed something was wrong on my birth certificate. So I went to my grandmother and I asked her, 
you know, why, why did the hospital get my name wrong? And my grandmother got real quiet, and then she explained to me that they actually didn't get my name wrong. Um, that's how she spelt it. And what was incorrect on my birth certificate to me was my name. The spelling was wrong. Um, and my grandmother then informed me, no, the spelling was right. Um, my mom, when I was born, used to, they would give you seven days in the hospital. You'd be put to sleep during the surgery. There was no epidurals. There was totally knocking you out. Um, she woke up, asked the nurses what she had. They told her that she had had a little girl, and she said, I don't want it. Um, they smiled and were polite to her. I said, you know, you're, you're just, you just had a baby. You will. And they left me with her in a bassinet. Um, and Granny said that a few days after I was born, the nurses got tired of hearing me crying in the, in the house, um, the room at the hospital where I was at. So um, she wasn't feeding me. She wasn't changing me. And she'd push my bassinet in the corner and draw the curtains around the hospital bed so she wouldn't even have to look at me. And the nurses got tired of hearing me cry, so they came in and took me to the nurse's station. And when it came time for her to take me home, she again repeated that she didn't want me. And they said, they explained to her, you have to give her a name. And she said no. So they ended up calling my grandmother. And my grandmother came to the hospital and my grandmother named me. Um, I think the one thing that that probably has insulted me more than anything. It's not that she didn't name me or that she didn't want me. It's just that she had possession of something, and she never bothered to even look to see how you spell my name. And so she taught me how to spell it incorrectly. And my whole life, I had been spelling my name the way she taught me how to spell it, and it wasn't even who I was. Wow. That's... So... I mean, it sets up kind of what continued happening from there. So... As I was writing that chapter, and I think you and I talked about this later that you didn't even know it at the time, but your grandmother named you, mm -hmm. and she named you Valerie Kay, mm -hmm. and not really probably processing the meaning of your name, and Valerie Kay is literally valiantly rejoicing. Like, that's what it translates to, and I mean, I think you were kind of marked from birth to, like, have an impact on the world, and I know it's not, you know— what it took to get there. Mm. So, Josh, why reading the first chapter, like when we were going over this, why was that such a challenge for you, like from where you came from in life? And Well, I grew up in a place where people were just not treated anything close to the way you were treated. A mother loved and cherished the time that she had with her child at first. Mm -hmm. And it was intimate. It was special to her. Mm -hmm. And so, man, when I when I was reading what she was writing about, just your early childhood, it it just rocked my world. I couldn't believe that. I mean, you you hear and you see things in movies about people being horribly mistreated, but it, it's so distant. And it and this you were someone I knew. It was it was so real to me. And I just couldn't believe some of the things that had happened in your earliest, you know, even in your earliest memories of childhood. Yeah. And well, it, it was weird, like, to realize that 
like your birth parents still live within just a few miles of where I was living when we first met. Like it, it's I know. just and bizarre. Then guys, and then you guys ended up moving. Like when you when I came to do some work on the website mm-hmm. page, you guys were living literally three blocks away from where I was born. Yeah, it's just crazy to me. Also, one thing I do want to point out because I think that this will kind of just be like thematic throughout, but you don't refer to them as mom and dad. Like they're your birth mm-hmm. mother and your birth father. And what are their names? Um, their names are Trisha Ann and Larry Jackson. Yeah. yeah. So that's the, like when you talk about it, I just, that's something that stuck out to me too, because mm-hmm. even then, like, it's almost kind of like, you know, they did a lot to steal your identity. And so you make sure to like, you know who they are in your own life too. But anyway, um, okay. so. What is, I know that was from other people's recollections. What's your earliest memory? None of them are good. It's okay. You can take a break. Yeah, no, it's, it's okay. <laughs> um, the first one was actually a happy one. Um, my parents were in what it looked like to be a trailer, and uh, I was on the living room floor. And we were, uh, my dad and I, were in front of a um, console-like TV. He was very excited. Um, Turns out it was the day, and I know this is going to sound so strange because you're not supposed to have memories really early on in your childhood, but he was excited because there was a landing on the moon. And my parents do not do drugs. My, My birth parents don't smoke. They smoke cigarettes, but they don't do drugs. They don't drink. They do not abide in any type of negative, what, what people would think might be an excuse or a reason for why someone would be the way they were to me. Um, and I remember him drinking tomato juice and watching the landing, and he was so excited. That was the first memory I had. The second one, um, Again, I was I was still real little. I was in a diaper. Um, the only reason I remember that I was in a diaper was because I had been dropped off at the babysitter's house, and the babysitter was at her front door, and my mother, my birth mother, was outside and down a little bit lower, and they were communicating with one another, and Sesame Street was on the TV, and apparently I must have needed a diaper change because... I remember being picked up by a male and um, being taken into a room. And the next thing I remember is incredible pain. And that was the first time I was sexually molested. And, you know, it's interesting even the, the concept of pain because one of the things that I've heard that is taught to like people who investigate sexual crimes against children is that often children don't when they communicate what's happened about things like that it's not that it felt wrong um it's not something that they usually feel guilty for at first but there's pain even though physically you probably weren't hurt like 
you were, you know, it was burning. It burnt. It hurt. And I think that's also one of the things that stuck out. Even that first time we, we talked was, um, I have my own story of, you know, sexual abuse in my past as a child, but like for you, it just started so young and it wasn't just the one time. It wasn't just the one person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's just, I can understand why your heart is so for children today and mm-hmm. and for their their safety. And so um, kind of is there anything else that stands out to you about maybe between like three to five ish when you were really little and first having like formative experiences? What was it like to be the child of your birth parents? And, you know, um, my my siblings and I, we've we've sat down and talked about it because we had to look at our childhood and you know people will ask me what was it like to be you as a kid and I hate talking about it because I can't find anything good yeah and I was with my siblings and I said you know I hate saying that I don't want to say that that sounds so yuck yeah. um so tell me because when you're little and you've got older siblings and a, and a younger one, you forget, you, you might get the time range wrong, or you might get the address or where you used to live wrong, and you may forget certain things. So um, I asked them, you know, what was some good times that we ever had? And they just, they couldn't think of any. We didn't have any good times to share. Um, the only time that we had anything positive was always when we had each other. Mm-hmm. Um we were just always together. So that How was, many siblings do you have? There's four of us, um, two boys and two girls. Um, the boys were born, uh, they were born first. So the, the way that we distinguish each other is we have two brothers and two sisters. So we have a big brother and a little brother and a big sister and a little sister. So I'm big sister. And um, then, you know, we have big brother, little brother. And What's the sister. age breakdown? Like how far apart are you guys? Um, just a few years between each other, mm-hmm. uh, no more than three years apart. My sister yeah. and I were born almost back to back. So, um, we, we kind of think that maybe there might've been some postpartum stress or something like that, that might've added to, but later on, um, when we were in the orphanage, um, and as adults, when we got to looking back into ourselves, uh, she had been diagnosed as schizophrenic bipolar and some other things birth mom yeah our birth mom yeah wow now did you ever try to run away from home yeah um i just started practicing at five and what what people do not get is that children are really really smart they may not understand or have a cognitive grip on what's going on around them but they know if they don't like something and they know if it feels wrong. And I had been contemplating running away for a while. Uh, I started by hiding and running away underneath the kitchen table and planning it out. I planned out my runaway. Um, I knew exactly where I wanted to go because I'd had a dream for months and months about where my hiding place would be. Um, So I packed my bags. I put on my favorite dress and my favorite little sandals and grabbed my dolly, um, grabbed a blanket and knew I was probably going to need money. So I snuck past my parents' bedroom 
and took the pennies that were in a penny jar, a little penny bank, put them in my pocket, and snuck back out through the entire house, went out the back door, opened up the screen, and it was one of those squeaky things, so you had to walk, like, really, really slowly. And I remembered that I was probably going to get hungry, so then I had to backtrack because I was a chubby kid. and um, <laughs> Which is hard to imagine now, by the way. <laughs> and, and I went into the refrigerator because the refrigerator was right next to the back door. And I drank a half a gallon of milk before I left. You know, it tied me over. <laughs> and then I started walking, and I got from the front of the old Williamson County Hospital Almost all the way to Thompson Station before I was picked up. And And how old were you? I was five. Five years old. And you'd been practicing like you were ready because you knew you needed to get out. Yeah. I'd been planning. So you mentioned the orphanage thing earlier. Now, you didn't spend a lot of time in an orphanage, but Mm -hmm. when you mentioned that, you're talking about the Baptist Children's Home, right? The Tennessee Baptist Children's Home. Um, So when did that happen? Was it just you or, like, were the other siblings there with you or what happened? Um, There was all four of us. Our parents had gotten a divorce. It was pretty violent. um, And Trisha Ann has only two loves in her life, and those are and, and by no fault of themselves, it's just who she is. She has two loves, and they are my birth father and my big brother, my oldest brother. Um, so when they got a divorce, she was really angry at my dad. Um, so she took us to the Tennessee Baptist Children's Home and did an emergency drop-off and signed herself into a nut ward. And I know that's not a nice way to put it, but that's what she did. Um, She didn't do it because she needed help. She didn't think. She just did it because she wanted to punish our dad. And By signing herself into a psychiatric center? And keeping him away from being able to have any connection to us. Wow. She cut it completely off. That was her way of punishing him. Um, She really didn't think about it punishing us. She just wanted to punish him for having an affair on her and it it worked and we were only left there for like six and a half months um the system is a crazy beast and they let her come and pick us up and take us out out only after six and a half months but even though back then it's, it's it's a lot better now but when i was in there i was molested by three um, of the boys that lived in our house. Like other kids away from their families. Mm-hmm. And, um, but um, we hopped in a bus every single Wednesday and Sunday and went to church. And it was the first time I met God. Wow. Mm-hmm. So it's not bad. It's, it, to some people it may sound like it's really sad, but for me it was like one of the greatest things because I found God. So what happened? I know you. the story of Job played into that a lot for you. And like, yeah. What was the process like? Um, Had you ever been exposed before to, like, Christianity, to the gospel, to any of that? Unless it was GD and in cussing, no. Okay. Anyway, so. <laughs> wow. Um, so um, we, sorry, uh, I 
my house parents would take us to church, and I fell in love with church. I fell in love with a particular hymnal, and my house parents gave me my first Bible. It was a King James. Um, a lot of, a lot of um, times, children who are exposed to incredible trauma will it will it will show up. Um, it'll show up. And, and in my case, it showed up because I had a speech impediment, mm-hmm. which is really crazy because God blessed me later on. And, and I spoke for an entire year to over 63,000 children. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> but, but when I was about when I was really small and I wanted to say something like I talk like this, it came out. I hot I ear. And it's what they call thick tongue. Um, I also wet the bed nightly. I had manic. Um, I would just, I would, it, it's just one of those things. Um, so I couldn't speak well, and I didn't smell all that great as a kid. But when I got to the orphanage, um, I got my first new pair of tennis shoes because they gave you this thing called an allowance. And allowance was, like, so cool. It was <laughs> manna from heaven. And they had this little area where you could shop for your own stuff. So I bought my very first Mickey Mouse shoes, and that's when I became a shoe girl. Um, I bought my first Sunday dress, and I got to go to church, and I got to sit with other people, and I got to meet God. And... I had heard in church the story of Job, and from that moment on, it has always been my favorite book. I think one of the things that Rebecca and I have always talked about, though, is is when you're two years old and you don't really understand what's happening to you, you don't understand what's going on, you you will find a way to try to understand it, and you don't realize that that is control. You're, you're just trying to walk your path. And when ugly starts really laying on top of you, layer after layer after layer, Grand Canyon style, yeah, um, <laughs> you, you will find a place inside of yourself that you can regress into that where the ugly can't get to you. Yeah. And then when you learn how to walk out of that valley and you're trying to get back to that mountaintop, you you will go back to what you have always internally done. Right. And when you're learning to walk with God and you, you walk out of the church and you start walking into the world and you are not only just putting on the full armor of God, but you're walking with the full armor of God. And when when you're walking with God and you do know, you do understand, you've got to let that go. That is one of the hardest things to actually learn to do is to trust. And it's 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 not only just learning how to trust, it's learning to to if you can't serve the Lord, how can you serve anybody else? And if Jesus can get down on his feet and in hands and knees and wash someone else's feet, yeah. You know, how are we gonna learn unless we give it all up? And when you give it all up, that means that you won't have another safety hidey hole to go back into. And that is really hard to Mm -hmm. do. And I I know it's a control issue. Well, and I don't say that. I don't say it's a control issue to rebuke you. I'm not like, and it's not supposed to sound like that. Like, I just, I hear it because I do the exact same thing. But I've heard you say so many times, like, I don't want people to remember me. I want people to remember God. And I, like, 
I know where you're coming from. Like, I get it because I woke up this morning and thought, well, we're starting this new thing and I'm going <laughs> to, I'll ruin a few more people's lives in the course of trying to tell their testimony. And then I'll give up in a few years again and it'll yeah. be a disaster. And like, I was, I'm so like, I feel like I'm just constantly afraid. And like, that's not, first of all, it's not where I'm supposed to live. But like, if I'm constantly afraid, cause I'm feeling like, well, when I have a hand in it, it's what ruins it. Or like, I'm the one that's faulty. And so if I can just point people to God and make sure they forget who I am, like just Let all of that of, stuff. Yeah. But it is a control issue. Like it's not. But it's also a trap of the enemy to make you hesitant yeah. to share every ugly detail because you're not the only one going through this. I'm Other on, people I'm, need to hear it. They, they need, need to, to hear you break down. Well, and the whole point of what we're doing is to capture the hope yeah. for people. That we could bring heaven down and that people could experience hope for dark or even darker. I mean, it's hard to believe, but even darker situations than what you went through. Mm -hmm. And God yeah. wants to use all the ugly details to yeah. tell people that there's hope. Yeah, my, my brother Kerry used to tell me, don't cry, Valerie Kay. There's a kid out there who's going to have it worse than us. And there are. Yeah. There really are, which just that's what makes me cry. That is what breaks my heart because yeah. so many of us have already had to go through it. So many of us have lived. Um, we're not even survivors anymore. Some some of us are victorious. Yeah. And to turn around and see, you know, Satan still doing it to the next one, just absolutely. I cannot let that go. I, I can't. Hurt me, and I'm good. Yeah. Hurt another little one, and I'm going to lose my cookies. And when I was listening to the story about Job, and I'm, I'm listening to how God and, and Satan are having this conversation, and God's saying, okay, you can have him. He's my favorite. He will not do what you're saying he's going to do, but mm -hmm. you're not allowed to do this, this, and this. My mom, and, and what I took from that story is that through the entire walk with God and Job struggling and making it out to the other side, none of that impressed me. None of that stuck with me. Mm -hmm. What stuck with me was that God told Satan no, and when Satan left the room, he still did not cross God. Yeah. And that is what stuck with me because my my parents could be one way to the public, but then when you close the door, they were a monster. And to know that the ugliest of ugly has to and does understand who's in control and it's not Satan, that it is God, that was the moment that I understood, okay, who can I trust? And who do I know is going to stand up for me when the ugly really gets bad? And while I was I was in that moment, now I know it was only six and a half months. I know it was a King James Bible. I know I couldn't understand and comprehend everything. I didn't have that comprehension level. But it never lost on me who is in control, who has total power, and that if I just stick with him, I'll be safe. And I... That next Sunday, right before I went to church, I asked my house parents if I could be baptized. And I hadn't been in the church for very long at all. I have never had to be redunked 
I'm just saying. <laughs> One time was enough for me. Yeah. Even at eight and a half, it was enough for me because I knew it. He was right there. He was the same yesterday. He was the same today. He's going to be the same for me tomorrow. He's He has held my hand, and when he couldn't hold my hand, he's carried me. And I know that all the ugly that I went through, if he hadn't have been carrying me, then his back would not be as bloody bloody and blistered and carved to pieces as it was because there were some things that he had to protect me from that I didn't even know. Yeah. And I asked my sister, you know, can I be baptized? I said, Valerie, do you understand what you're asking for? And I said, at eight and a half, yes. So, well, what are you asking? And I said, if she gets me back and she kills me, I'm going to go to heaven. Wow. So I was baptized the next Sunday. And that wasn't even a childish fear. Like that's like that was real that you felt that way, not because you were making up fantastical stories, but like that was life. That was a real fear that yeah. made sense. And you were how old when you got baptized? Eight and a half. Eight and a half. Mm -hmm. And so you were in foster care. Mm -hmm. You didn't know if you'd go back home with your family. Oh, was I there ever? I, I knew I was. I mean, was there ever back. a chance you could be adopted or fostered? Um, well, number one, I had anger issues. I was a really angry kid. I was nothing like what you see now. When you go into ugly and you're in ugly, and then you are washed in the blood of Jesus, and you come out on the other side, you're not the same person. Right. You cannot be truly washed in Him and look the same. So when people see me now, they're like, "No way! This hell happened to you? No way!" They're, you know, and I just, I just turn around and I just smile at Jesus, and I'm like, "Yeah, way, yeah, way, way." <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was so angry. I was so mean. I, I was beating people. I was cussing you out. The only time you could understand anything that I had to say was when I was swearing at you, because I could cuss you as clean as day. But if I wanted to tell you something I was excited about or I was happy about or that I was joyful with, you couldn't you couldn't understand me. And I also still wet the bed all the time. So I was a stinky, angry, unapproachable child. My sister, however, my baby Sissy, did have a family come in and they had taken her out. I didn't even know. And they had taken her out privately, and this family looked at her. She was the cutest thing. Oh, my God, my sister is so beautiful. Mm. And um, little blonde hair, just the cutest, skinniest thing. And I was the fat, chubby, dark-haired one. <laughs> and they wanted her. And she said, I'm not going to go if my sissy can't come. And they didn't take her because they wouldn't take wow. me. So you were there a little over six months. Like, what, mm -hmm. why were you not there longer? Why didn't you go to a foster family at that point? Like, um, well, my birth mother had signed herself out of the Nutso Ward. Mm -hmm. She was healed and um, couldn't stand not being. Now I know. I didn't when I was eight and a half. There's no way you know all these things. Um, but couldn't stand not having my older brother with her. And she wanted him. And they wouldn't let you just cherry pick a kid. You couldn't have one. You had to take them all. So 
she had to take all four of us, and they let her take all four of us. Um, before we left, though, she sat me, she asked my house parents if she could talk to me alone. They said yes. I immediately knew it wasn't going to be good. Um, I sat on the fireplace, and, and the fireplace was one of these brick, like, level things off the ground. And you could you could sit on it, and it was so high up, and I was so little that my feet didn't touch the ground. And I remember uh, on the living room floor, and I remember sitting there, and she was on the couch. And she explained to me in whispers that um, she was taking me not because she wanted me. She was taking me because they wouldn't give her the one she wanted unless she took me. And she didn't want me to get it twisted. Um, and then she, next thing I know, we're in the car, and, and my cousins are in the car. I didn't know it at the time because the children's home keeps you all separated. Um, but my mom's sister apparently had dropped her children off there at the same time. And they all had a family affair where they picked us all up at the same go and took us all out at the same time, too. It just is, it astounds me because I know even though obviously no one was in the room when your mom was, like, saying this stuff to you about not wanting you. But, like, the fact that she even uh, – there had to be some conversation of, like, well, can't I just take this one kid home? Somebody had to tell her, no, you either pick up all your kids or you don't pick up any of them. And it's astounding to me that someone didn't look at that and go – this woman, this this woman should not be given her children back. Like, how? Where's well, the breakdown there? Actually, no. She knew. She already knew. She didn't have to have anybody tell her. So she had just been hiding. Oh, well, you knew her desires later on because she told them to you, but yeah. not. Um, and she, unbeknownst to me, she had also said the same thing to my baby sister, privately, separately. Um, she told the girls. She didn't tell the boys. And. Because she, she always wanted to give your dad boys, right? That was, like, her thing. Yeah, she wanted to give my, my birth father boys. And uh, she had lied to my birth father. It came out later in the first divorce um, with my little brother standing in front of her. They were screaming and yelling at each other, and she wanted to hurt my dad. And she said, well, you know what? Newman's not yours either. And my brother was named after him. And that's how my dad found out that my brother wasn't even his. And I was actually the first baby that was his. And when she found out I wasn't a boy, she she just, it, it was like a puppy you take to the pound. Yeah. So, like, this, again, sticks out to me just throughout hearing a lot of what you went through, even at the children's home and all of those things. So... I know you already said, like, you had the speech impediment. Mm -hmm. You you weren't clean a lot of the time, like, when you went to school or mm -hmm. or whatever. Like, did—was there any point at which, like, a like a teacher or just somebody was like, oh, maybe, maybe there's something wrong here? Like, did anyone hear you? Did anyone see you? No. No. Um, and I even had this conversation with a past teacher— uh, we went to a lot of different schools on top of everything else. I never got to go to the same school for more than two years in a row until I was in junior high school. We would go to two to three different schools per year. My sister and I would end up, we were the ones that would fill out your enrollment paperwork um, in a side office. When we went to Page High School, well, Page Junior High at the time, 
um, we filled out our, our entry paperwork and we were filling out together and looking at each other's sheets. And there was a question on one of the sheet, uh, the sheet that said, if you get hurt, where would you like to go to? And I had written Williamson Medical Center. And my CC wrote the closest hospital. And so I erased Williamson Medical Center and I wrote the closest hospital. That's where I want to go. Um, because we had always filled out that information together. And um, she she just... The teachers never had enough time with us alone to ever get to really see us. They would move us around a lot. So, of course, they didn't see. Yeah. And the... The director of the um, Heritage Foundation's museum is Rick Warwick, and Rick was the librarian at one of the schools that we went to, and I asked him just last year, I said, Rick, did you not see anything? And Rick said, honestly, I didn't. Um, he knew that my brothers were acting out in school, and he knew that my, um, he knew that my, my youngest brother was missing from school. He had gotten to trouble when he was like in first grade, second grade, and done something really, really bad. Um, and my dad had beat him with a canoe oar. And my brother couldn't walk for weeks. And I'm, I'm amazed that Newman is still alive. He should, he should have one of, been one of the kids that you, that you see. But Rick never saw it. And it's because they know what they're doing. They, they move you. They hide you. And they keep you isolated. So tell me about, like, with your siblings, when you got in trouble, when something happened mm -hmm. and they didn't know who did it. Mm -hmm. um, when, you, when you've got four little ones... And, and I'm not making excuses for them, but I have now become a mom. And I've had little ones back to back. So I know how disruptive they can be. And I know they can be just little monkeys and they are everywhere and they tear up stuff. And you turn your back just <laughs> five seconds and, and, and the toilet won't flush and the house is on fire. And all you did was try to go to the potty. Yeah. So I, I get that. I really do understand and appreciate those things. Um, and apparently we were always doing something, and there is a difference, and, and, I, and I really need for people to understand this, there is a difference between loving discipline and correction and beating and, and child abuse. Um, spanking and swatting your child on the hiney because they ran in front of a car before looking both ways, and you are panicked because they didn't understand their safety issues. That's one thing. Picking up a canoe oar and beating a child until they no longer cover their head for protection and you still well on them, that's child abuse. So... When you're you're having to sort of live through those things, um, what what were we? I just was remembering like when you would do yeah, something like would, that, like in the we line would, you we up would and do some crazy stuff. I don't know what we do. Something that would cause us to be justifiably spanked or beaten or worse. Um, because Newman was the one that got it the worst. Um, because he never backed down. He, when my dad beat him with a canoe oar, the first swing was so strong that it picked him up and threw him against the wall. And he was like seven, eight years old. And 
I mean, if you've been beaten, you know when to roll over and play dead. You know when to cover your head. You know when, if they're going to kick you, you you know how to move so that it, it doesn't hurt your kidney. And, and he knew better. But he pushed himself up off the floor, used the wall to stand up, and then walked straight back to my dad. And my dad hit him again and again and again and again for being defiant. Newman would always get it. So sometimes Trisha would line us all four up and say, look, you know, I know one of you broke this, that, and another, and you're not going to tell on who ever did it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to line you all up, and I'm going to whip all of you, and I'm going to get the right one. Um, if Newman was the one who did whatever was going to cause us all to get a spanking, uh, one of us would step in and take that spot for the other. Um, and then later on, he'd get it from us because his butt whooping was coming. Um, just from us, though, and <laughs> not them. Um, but I forget what it was, but Carrie Lynn, you do little things sometimes. You find out if some, you, you learn if they're going to hit you. You learn if they're angry by their body language. And Carrie knew. That's her oldest brother. Yeah. He knew that our mom had chosen, quote unquote, him. And he didn't ask for her to, right. but she did. Yeah. And he understood that. And so Carrie would take. He would take a lot. But he had this way of making her laugh. And if you could make her laugh, she might, you know, forget. And he could do impressions. He could he could be a dove. And he could do Donald Duck. He could mimic Donald Duck really well. And this one time, she had lined us up. And I, I know that it was Newman who had done what he had done. And she started with Carrie first. And Carrie um, went down to his knees. And he, he did his hands in a prayer motion. And he said, please, please don't whip me. And uh, she laughed and she didn't. And he, he said in his Donald Duck voice. <laughs> I remember the first time I ever heard your story. You were so cool as a cucumber, just completely <laughs> yeah. matter of fact about everything. Mm -hmm. And there's you'd already told me stuff that just like I was crying. I think I cried the whole time. And you started talking about the story with Carrie Lynn and to protect Newman and like it was the first time that you cried and I just I have this very acute picture in my head of like the four of you as kids in the yard and just this like sweet boy just you know the prayer hands and like tears down his face like asking like in a Donald Duck voice like please don't and it's like the most I mean it's just so sad 
-hmm. you know? And even that story is not even one of the worst ones where something, quote, unquote, bad even happened. (laughs) It's just, like, the depth of evil in people to hurt a child. Like, I I literally don't understand. Yeah. Well, I think one of the reasons why I can um, talk so coolly about some stuff is because if it happened to me— I'm I'm okay with talking about it. Yeah. Um, if it happened to somebody that I loved and I couldn't defend them or I didn't know how to defend them or I was too little to defend them and they got hurt, that devastates me. Yeah. And that's one thing that she knew she could do to hurt you. Um, she had told me once that I had gotten used to getting beaten, so she was going to teach me of a new way to hurt me. And she wasn't going to lay a hand on me to do it. She'd know that it was me. She said, you'll know it's me that's done it to you, but I won't lay a hand on you when it happens. And one of the things about my mom is she never made threats. She she made promises, and, and she, by God, she kept every one of them. And uh, she taught me. She taught me that one, too. What was she, like, what was that that she was even talking about? Um, my parents, they had like a little, and I, and I can't, ex- I don't know how to explain it to, to where people understand. I can just tell you the way it was. And my, my parents each had a pick of the children. And I know you're not supposed to do that. A lot of parents, we do. You can go, you can even think you don't have a pick and you can go into the family and your siblings and you say, which one does mom love more? And they'll all point to the one that mom loves more, and they'll say, okay, mom, you got to go get the cookies. Go ask her, you know. Well, they each had a pick, and my mom's pick was my oldest brother, and my dad's pick was me. And she only loved two things in her world, and that was my dad and my brother. And if my dad even acted like he was going to be kind to me or loving to me, it would make her livid. And... um she had gotten really angry at me. We were living in College Grove, and it was a winter time, and we had a freezer outside in a little rinky-dink shed. And she told me that she was going to cook, which was quote-unquote, she was cooking, but I was the one who was going to do the cooking. Mm-hmm. And there was a particular meal she was going to make, and I needed to go outside to the freezer and get the chicken and bring it in and thaw it out. And I went out, and I got the chicken, and I brought it in, and I put it in the sink, and she went ballistic. And she started screaming and cussing at the top of her lungs, and she flung open the back door of the trailer and yelled, Larry Jackson, you get your bleep, bleep, bleep in this house. I'm sick and tired of this child. You better come in here and do something with her. And it was freezing cold. And my dad had come inside, and he was standing in front of the fireplace, and we had a cook stove kind of deal. And... um. He said, what, what do you want me to bleep, bleep, bleep do with this bleep, bleep kid? I'm busy. I'm trying to fix this car. It won't work. i got to go to work. I'm the only one who makes any money in this house. She goes, you better teach her that she has to do exactly what I say to do because she picked. She didn't go out and get enough chicken. I didn't get enough. I told her exactly what I was cooking. She knows how many people we're cooking for. She knows how to cook, and she brought in one chicken instead of two, and she did it on purpose to make me mad, and I'm sick and tired of her. And so they're yelling at one another, and my and my parents' um, anger was like my dad was the crock pot. He was slow, and he would work himself up, and then once he got hot, he stayed hot. And my mom was the microwave, and it was banging you, I mean, you just you never knew when she was going to snap on you. And she was working my dad up. 
And my dad told me to come from the the kitchen into the living room where he was, and he turned around and he picked up the the fireplace poker, and he said, I'm so sick and tired of having to come in here and deal with you. You need to do whatever, blah, 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 blah. And he started, um, I don't know how many times he hit me before I passed out, but um, I had hit the floor, and she was in the kitchen where you could see, and um, she was standing at the kitchen sink, and she had one hand on her hip and the other strumming her fingers on the countertop and smirking because she made someone that I loved so angry that they beat me and she wanted me to know that she kept her promise. Mm. Wow. Did your dad ever molest you? Your no. st- your birth dad, father? Mm-mm. No. Um my dad never ever ever touched me. That was you know, my dad had problems with anger. His mm-hmm. anger was what was his um, his thing. My, my mom nor my dad ever sexually molested me. It was either third or fourth removed family members or people who would just come inside of our circle. Um, I really felt like every time I went into a new situation, I had molested me on me somewhere <laughs> because it didn't matter where I went. And um, later on, now that I've been able to do self-study and, and talk to law enforcement and talk to those who do interviewing for criminals and victims, children don't understand that they do let perpetrators know that they are an easy target because there are certain things, buttons they'll push, and if a child doesn't react one way, then they'll know that this is who you can feed off of. And children aren't equipped to know what to do with what's happening to you, much less how to tell people what's happening to you yeah. or or to even give off those kind of signals, those, those little telltales. So it wouldn't have mattered how much I scrubbed my face or my forehead trying to get molest me off. It wouldn't have mattered because I was telling by my body language and they knew what to look for and they knew what to see. And it was just... It's just how many people like how many people what do you even know i i'm I never bothered to stop to count um there were just a lot um I know that I lost my virginity when I felt the pain um but sexual molestation is not about sex, and it's not even something where you have to penetrate a child. Yeah. It is slowly getting them comfortable, making them, making a child feel like, okay, this doesn't feel right, but everybody around me is nice to this person, kind to this person, so it must be okay. Body language. Children don't listen with their ears. They listen with their eyes. And if they don't see you reacting, and you don't know to, to look, but they don't see it. So they... They don't know that what's being done to them is seen by the outside as wrong. They know on the inside that it's ooky, but it's a slow progression. They don't go in yeah. for the kill. It's it's slow sometimes, and I don't know how many. So with the total just breakdown mm-hmm. of everything that happened to you as, as a child and just attacking from the very beginning just who you are, 
like how did that go into your teenage years and preteen like what was your life like during that time um Trish Ann liked to control you um through neglect sometimes uh she'd like for you to know she'd do things so that you would understand that she was in control um when we had gotten out of the orphanage we were living in Hillsboro, Bethesda area. And my little, my oldest brother, Carrie, had a dog. And her name was Sadness. And Trisha had named the dog Sadness. And Sadness has gotten, she had gotten pregnant. And Trisha Ann called us all into the bathroom. And Sadness was having her puppies. And Trisha Ann took the first puppy. Um, and flushed it. And then she handed a puppy to each of us and helped us to flush it. So, <laughs> you would know who has the ability to take life. And you would each understand it without being told. So, um, she would not let me bathe, and I would wet the bed, and she'd send me to school smelling, reeking of urine. Um, when I started ministrating, she wouldn't buy things that girls need. So my baby sister and I, um, we improvised. Um, my, our dad um, worked on cars a lot because we were the quintessential country southern home. You pass by the trailer and there's 20 cars and lawnmowers that don't work. He was always working on something that was broken down. And so he had shop rags, those big blue shop rags. And uh, my sister and I would fold them up and put them uh, during certain times of the month. And one day, um, I had bled through, and uh, one of the students that I'd gone to school with, had his name was Brian, <laughs> pointed at me and said, look, she has a bloody penis. Uh, I'm not mad at Brian. It was what it was. But it was it was just Trisha's way of letting me know that I couldn't even be happy at school. And that was until I met my best friend, Stephanie. <laughs> Stephanie, in the 80s, you had the horrible Madonna hair and gloves <laughs> and the 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 crazy huge 
aluminum-looking space-suited purses that you could pack an entire family in. <laughs> and uh, I'd get on the bus, and um, Stephanie would get on the bus before me, and I'd get on the bus. She'd save my seat, and I'd sit down next to her, and she'd open up this aluminum purse, and she'd show me my outfit for the day that she picked out of her closet. And we would go into the bathroom, and Stephanie would do my hair and makeup and dress me. Um, and then I'd look pretty for the day, and then I'd change my outfit before I went home and got on the bus so that Trisha wouldn't know that I was pretty at school. It feels like another life. Like, like the person, I know nobody listening can see you right now, but like the person standing in front of me, like you are a beautiful, like put together blonde I paid her to say bombshell. this, by the way. No. $20 is coming later. <laughs> but seriously, like just the thought of you being the person that like someone else would even have to try to make look pretty, but like you were just this whole other kid. And the thing I've come back to, I titled there when I wrote the short story about your life, like I titled it The Girl Who Had No Voice. And that just has been kind of a recurring theme. Even, I mean, you, you weren't even allowed to like want your mom when you were a newborn, much less like be heard later on. And I think that like, I mean, it sounds like Stephanie's the first person who ever gave you a voice, like whoever took the time to listen to you. And that honestly, I think, is such a huge part and plays into what you do even today and like what matters to you and, and yeah. why those things are so important. Yeah, she gave me my first my first Christmas present ever by a friend. And it was a little doll I still have. And her name is Candy, little rag doll. She wow. gave it to me. And so, like, the during high school, you still, even with, like, I know, like, oh, it just, I think the first time I got, like, righteously angry during the, like, you know, chronological version of, like, everything that happened was the story about when you first started your period. Because she would tell you that you were dirty yeah. for starting it. Like, that's why you weren't allowed to have, like, yeah. a pad or a tampon, like, just mm -hmm. an average person should be able to to have. And, like, I think that's the first time I got righteously angry, not just at your birth parents, but, like, to think. And I and you can't be mad at people who don't see it, but, like, like how did a teacher, like, how did this not occur to someone? Like, no one, no one looked at you and said, like, this girl is broken. This isn't normal. Like, what can we do? Like, it was just, you were just allowed to exist this way. There were four of you. Like, yeah, no, I was, and, and I wasn't nice either. I think the first person that I really beat um, was in the trailer park when, um, when I guess it was like less than four. Um, I beat her up really bad. Um, the second person that I beat up real bad, I hospitalized. I put him in the hospital. The ambulance came to the school and picked him up. Um, him? Turns out. Yeah, I beat up a little boy because, <laughs> oh. you know, hitting a girl never really let me feel good. And I was very, very angry. And that's one of the things that I, I try to look at when I go into schools and we talk about bullying. People who want to just look at the victim side of, of bullying are missing out on what's really going on. Mm -hmm. If you would just take that bully and love on that bully, 
you would remove all of the ugly that's going on and you would save so many so much hurt there's a reason why that bully is acting out and um i beat this little boy so bad at bethesda um i stomped him and i broke his arm in two places and he was carted off in an ambulance and so that's being said publicly, so I, I say sorry to you now. I don't know who you were, and hopefully I don't get sued for something I did when I was six years old. But, yeah. It's um, all covered by the blood of Jesus. We'll, yeah. we'll say that <laughs> Well, the thing is, is that— And the statute I, of limitations. Oh, that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I'm always afraid. I'm going to meet somebody that I was a bully to. And, and the people that I went to school with, they said, Valerie, you really weren't that bad. But to me, I was really angry. And I did take it out on some people. Jacqueline Walker, oh, I made her life so horrid. I was so angry at her and at a boy named Chip because— Chip always went to school with one of those little pocket Bibles in his back pocket. Mm -hmm. And I was so mad because God loved him. Oh. I was so and What did you get angry. in return from beating on these people? And I felt like that if I was mean, maybe God would notice. Because after identifying with the story of Job and knowing that God, like, cared about Job— and I didn't then going spend back that much with your time family. thinking about it. I was just really angry <laughs> just at God. Angry, yeah. I was mm -hmm. so mad. I was mad because there was this girl whose dad loved her, and she, you know, was given all these beautiful things, and she was just a sweet, loving child. And she had what I knew I was supposed to have, and I was mad that I didn't have. Man, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like without the intervention of Jesus in your life, that you would have just perpetuated the cycle that your mom, your birth mother, like, had with you. Mm -hmm. She was totally jealous of you and the attention mm -hmm. you got from your birth father. Mm -hmm. But, like, but God stepped in your life and totally changed yeah. the cycle. Well, I know that um, for a lot of children, they are never, ever exposed to God, to the outside world. They're mm -hmm. never. And for those children— being able to sit down with them and explain to them that they were known by God before they were ever placed into that womb. So even if you're not exposed to him, you still have him living inside of you. And that's the one thing that will give you that inner peace and that inner beauty because he's there. He's there every day. He's not just inside you. He's walking with you every minute. And he sees it and he feels it. And what I can tell people is, that with some of the students, we do a thing called a round, and it's where they talk about every day you write in your book of life, and every day when you wake up, that, play, that page is blank, and you write in it with your blood. It's permanent. There's no eraser, no backspace. It is immediate, and there's no editing button. And the only thing that God's going to read is what you did what you said, what you didn't do, what you didn't say. He's never going to read what someone did to you. That's not in your book. You don't own it. He will read it. You have to understand what forgiveness really looks like because you have to trust that he's going to take care of that because he loves your story. It's your story, and you have a reason and a purpose for being here. Don't let him open up a single page of your book 
and have him see something that would make him look up at, to you because he's only going to read it once. There's only one person who's ever going to read it. Don't let him look at you and say, depart from me for I never knew you. People will ask me what I'm afraid of. Am I afraid of Satan? No. I'm afraid of walking into hell without God with me because I've made it through this earthly hell. I couldn't imagine going through the spiritual hell without him. And do you know that that's the one thing that Jesus had to suffer too? He had to even go through that. And that's the one thing he cried and asked not to be put through. And even he cried to God. And even he said, Father, take this from me. And he had to walk it too. So you're not alone. And there's nothing that anybody can ever do to you that he has not already had to feel. And he had to feel it so that when you were going to go through it, you would have someone who can hold you and tell you, I understand. And you're not alone. And you can make it out. You can. It's okay. And a part of the, I mean, the book of your life and, like, your daily pages and stuff, I think, like, just something I want to, like, kind of add into what you're saying is that when God reads your book, like, your advocate is Jesus. And so the days that have stuff written, like when you beat up the kids who were so bad to you and all of those things, like when God reads your book at the end, like the pages like that, like they're all covered by the blood of Jesus and what God sees is clean and, and it's good and it's pure because you know him. Like he knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. It took you time to get to know him, you know? And anyway, just kind of... So Something that, that was, came to mind. Yeah, that was kind of like my youth and what I had to, to go through. Um, I went, I took speech impediment classes, um, my, my speech classes, until I was uh, in my seventh grade year. And who knew? <laughs> I'm talking into a microphone right now. <laughs> and even though I have a southern drawl, you can understand it. <laughs> you can. You can understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Was that, you got, like, by the time you were out of speech classes, I assume the impediment was pretty much gone? It still shows up when I'm stressed or, or very, very sleepy. If I'm, mm. I'm really sleepy, um, I will get the lazy, the thick like tongue. garbled, yeah. Yeah. Um, it kind of sounds like if I've had a seizure, a seizure, um, or something along those lines, and you can't really understand me. Um, but yeah. So when I know you left home at 18, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Survived the hell of, you know, whatever that place was. Yeah. And what was like I, there? Okay. Hold on. There was, let me think. Did back you to this. leave of hold, your own accord? Hold, hold on. There was, sorry. There was a time you told me about, and it was like briefly before you left home. And it was like the last time you remember Trisha Ann, is that her name? That's right. It's the last time you remember Trisha Ann hurting you. Mm-hmm. Or something. There was this thing, something about a curling iron. Oh. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, Stephanie would always get me dressed up. And we were going to have pictures. Picture day was coming. And they had let us know in high school that my class, our picture day, was going to be after gym class. Now, I never really dressed dressed out for gym because, number one, I was never allowed to shave my legs. So vanity took over, um, and I flunked P.E. (laughs) 
<laughs> because of unshaved legs. Well, yeah. Hello. Wow. I wouldn't show my unshaved legs to a PE class. I had a crush on a boy named Scott. Um, so that was, that was not happening. Um, but I was also getting drunk at school. And um, I was getting high at school. What grade was this? Um, well, I'd started smoking the cigarettes after I got out of the orphanage. Um, which, by the way, technically there are no orphans anymore because in the United States of America, um, we have children's homes because you're owned by someone at all times and you become a ward of the state. So you're no longer an orphan because the state of Tennessee is your mommy and daddy. Um, so I started smoking when I got out of the orphanage. I started getting high about nine years old, ten um, and I was slowly experimenting with bullet light and worked my way on up to old charter. Um, I had taken pills. I had cheated on, I, I couldn't study. I have, um, I'm undiagnosed with dyslexia. Um, but it's one of the things that if you suffer one area that you're a little shy on, you, you can compensate or overcome that in another area. So I could listen in class and I could get the information in. But my brother, my oldest brother and I, we both have dyslexia. And um, school was kind of hard. Um, I've flunked out. Particularly if no one ever knew you had dyslexia. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I never really, I never gave anybody a reason to. to right. I just stayed to myself. Um, and I, we had a chosen locker where a thermos was kept with some alcohol and some other things. And I would ask to go to the bathroom to go use the bathroom. But really, I was doing a pit stop. And by about fourth period, I'd be good and drunk. Um, if we skipped uh, P.E. and we had to go outside to do this the PE, they would set us far enough away up against the chain link fence at Page, and my friends and I would be acting like we were doing homework, but really we were passing a joint um, so that I could just numb, numb, numb. Whatever I needed to do, that's what I tried to do. And, and it was, I know now that's called coping. Right. And I was self-coping. I was trying everything I could, um, the suicide stuff, um, you name it. I was trying. I was trying. And we had gotten ready for P.E., and I wanted to curl my hair. For picture day. For picture day. And I had gone into my mom's bathroom and stolen her curling iron, and I gave it to Stephanie to hold in that Madonna purse, and she rolled my hair and a whole can of Aquanet, a whole can. It was fuming in there. <laughs> and took the photo and had a great day. Got on the bus. It was a Friday. Picture day was on a Friday. And we got on the bus, and we were singing and having a great time. And I had told Steffi, don't let me forget the Carl and I. Don't let me forget it. And she said, Oh, you won't. We won't. Well, it's all good. Sure enough, I forgot the curling iron. Stephanie got off the bus before I did, and I got home. And when I got home, just as soon as I got off the, the school bus, I remembered the curling iron. 
And I thought, okay, well, you know, my birth mother never gets out of her nightgown and her flip-flop house shoes. And it's a weekend. It's a Friday. And my dad gets paid, so she's not going to go anywhere. Um, I'll be good. It'll be okay. She won't notice it on Monday when I go back to school. I'll get it, and I'll have it back at the house by Monday afternoon. And that Saturday morning, our phone rang, and it was the neighbor down the street that ran the grocery store down in College Grove. It was uh, it was uh, Jesse James. His family owned it at the time. And she had called to say, hey, I have this emergency. Patricia, can you come down and run the store for me? And my mom said, yes, I'll be right there. And dang, if she didn't need to go get her curling iron. And she's asking me, where's my curling iron? Go get my curling iron. And I'm freaking out because I know she's going to, I know she's going to know. So I act like I can't find it. I'm pretending. And how old were you? Um, seven, sixteen, yeah, I was going to say this was high school. Okay. Yeah, and I'm pretending like I can't find it, and I'm telling her, oh, it must be lost. She knew. She knew. She's like, Valerie Kay, you did something to it. You did something to it. And finally, I just quit trying to pretend because I knew it was coming. So I said, yeah. She said, where is it? And I said, it's with Stephanie. And she picked me up by the the nap of my, the back of my hair, the baby hair. Um, she called it the kitchen. And what she would do is she, she had these long fingernails. And they were, they're razor sharp. And they're so hard. And she'd, she'd take your, the hair and she'd wrap it around her finger. And she'd pull up to make you walk on your tiptoes. And she marched me from her bathroom to the front door. And she started banging my head up against the front door and yelling and cussing at me. And how come every time I need something, it's always you who's doing this and this and that and other blah, blah, blah. She's just screaming. And she had a brush in her hand and she was hitting me in the face and the head with a brush and calling me all kind of names and just slamming my head up against the trailer door. And my brother Kayru was at the kitchen table, and she just kept, kept pow, 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 banging my head. And finally my brother said, stop it, that's enough. And Trisha Ann let go of me, and she was spitting at me and said, while she's staring at me, she's telling my brother, Kayru Lynn, you take her over to that stupid Elizabeth Skinner's house. And you go get my curling iron, and you bring it back, young lady. And my brother and I got in his car, and he drove me like five miles away from where we lived to Stephanie's house. And it was early in the morning. I knocked on their back door. Miss Mary Elizabeth let me in, and she could tell. Um that something was wrong. She didn't say anything, but she knew. And I asked her if Steffi was awake, and she said no. And I said, is she in her room? She said yes. And I said, can I see her for a second? And Miss Elizabeth said yeah. And I went into her room, and Stephanie had a hard time sleeping, y'all. She slept with cotton in her ears and the princess little mask over her eyes. Cause <laughs> Real hard life, time. Yeah, it was rough. <laughs> And she had to have her door closed, and she had her own room. 
you know, sweet Jesus, I had to share a bed with my sister. And so I go in and I kneel down next to the bed and I shake her a little bit and she pulls her, her little mask up and she goes, hey, and then she stopped talking. And she looks at me and she says, the Carlin iron. And she touched my face. And I leaned into her hand because I thought she was being comforting. But I didn't know that when Trisha had hit me with the brush, it had left an outline on my face. And that's why Miss Mary Elizabeth had looked at me funny. I had asked my brother, Kyrie, if he would go in and get the Carlin iron for me so they wouldn't know. And my brother said, no, you have to go in by yourself. You did it. You got to go and get it. She told you you had to go do it. So Stephanie got out of bed and went into the bathroom, and she gave me the Carlin iron. And I was leaving, and Miss Mary Elizabeth stopped me, and she said, Valerie, can you come into the bathroom again for a second? And I said, yes, ma'am. And she took me into the bathroom and she raised my shirt up and she hissed. And she, she didn't say anything else at first. She put the shirt down and she said, is your mama at home? I said, yes. And she said, baby, come into the kitchen with me. And it was when the phones were still connected to the walls. And she had this long cord that you stretched out because Stephanie had multiple boyfriends and she had private conversations in her bedroom which across the house. And so you had to stretch it all the way out. And it was so long. And um, she called my mama and my mama got on the phone and she said, Trisha Ann, I hated you when we were in school. And I can't stand you now. And if you ever beat this child again, don't forget I know where you live. And I'm sending her home to you. And uh, they had a few choice, lively words. And uh, I was excited and scared at the same time. I was excited because Miss Mary Elizabeth said something to my mama. But I knew that my mom wasn't Satan and I wasn't Job and uh, God was going to let me go home and she was going to beat me when nobody was looking and she did but at least she got told off first <laughs> was Elizabeth the first adult that ever stood up for you no she was the second the first one was a doctor um, at Williamson Medical um, when we had gotten out of the orphanage uh, we had, Trisha Ann took just Carrie to her house, and she gave my dad, me, my sister, and my brother Newman, and uh, separated us. And we were living with my dad, and my dad was living with his parents out at uh, Thompson Station. And uh, I had burned my leg, my right leg, and by the time they took me to the hospital, gangrene had already set in, and it had turned green. Um, and started kind of turning a little black and I had this huge 
um, scar back here where the burn had happened. And uh, I burnt myself twice, actually. I was riding a little Mifty uh, 50 uh, motorbike, a little zooming around. And I got excited, and I couldn't hold on to it, and it fell on top of me, and I burnt my leg. And I t decided to ignore it and got back on the little motorcycle and flew down the country road again. And it fell on top of me again right on the same place, and I ended up burning it really bad. It was third degree. Uh, didn't tell my grandparents. Didn't tell anybody. And uh, we decided to play hide-and-go-seek right after that which I'm really good at playing hide-and-go-seek. And we're out in the country, and there's a bunch of cows around, and uh, I found a place to hide in the cattails where the cows would come and get a drink of water. And I stayed hidden in there for a good minute or two with an open burn wound, mm. uh, and it got infected. <laughs> so what did the doctor say when he saw it, like, gross and my, clearly not taken care of. My my dad, Larry Jackson, is the one who took me to the hospital, and the doctor took him out into the hallway and cussed him out and told him that if he had waited another day, um, I would have been an amputee. Oh. Um, um, and they had to stand me in the bathtub and then scoop out every day, twice a day, and blood would just go everywhere because I hid real well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Dang. he was the first. Almost an amputee. Yeah, almost. My wool I feel like that really would have. Cool. I feel like that would have messed with the beauty queen thing. Nah. And God knew. I mean, you could have done it. You could have done it. Well, Might have made heels a little more complicated. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that it's one of the things that I, I used when I talked to students and kids in level two and level three lockdown. As I asked them, you know, one of the things that we used to do when we would go to different schools, because we had to travel and go to different schools a lot, um, we you try to fit in. And I didn't fit in with the jocks. I didn't fit in with the preps. I really didn't fit in with anybody. So what I'd do is I'd pick the biggest bully that I thought I could maybe beat up, mm -hmm. and I'd beat up that bully. And um, I would have my in into a group because uh, so, that's how you do it. And one of the things that you do is you talk about your war wounds. You know, how yeah. many times have you been in lockup? Well, I was in juvie this time. That time. And um, we then compare scars. Yeah. So when I went to a level two lockup and I was in my crown and my sash and we were in this wilderness camp for boys and I asked them, I said, this is what we used to do. So here's my scar. It's pretty big. It's about as big as a, uh, a softball. I said, who can beat it? <laughs> you know, because you're going to have to work pretty hard. And this young boy stood up and said, I can. And he raised his shirt. And uh, he had to have been like 15, 16. And he raised his shirt, and a piece of his side was missing where his daddy had shot him with a gun. Oh, What? And, yeah, he said that what had happened was is that his dad would get crazy drunk and beat on him and his older brother. And he had gotten off the school bus, and his dad was already lit. And he had a gun, and he was trying to sight in his gun, so he used his son. And he sighted it in until he hit him. Um, so his brother... He was laying on the ground. His brother came in out of work, saw him on the ground, bloody. His dad was almost passed out on the front porch, and so his brother beat his dad almost to death. So his dad got hauled off to the hospital. His brother got hauled off to the Hooskal, and after he got out of the hospital, they sent him to a level two because he was already so bad. And um, 
And he's telling me all that, but I look straight at him and I go, well, dude, that looks pretty gnarly. I guess you win. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, it's just, it's okay to show your scars, you know. Jesus took four to heaven on purpose. Um, the one in his side, the ones on his back, the ones across his forehead. Three days, I was telling some kids in Knoxville one time, if you've ever been, been really, like, horribly beaten, you know that the bruises, they don't go away in three days. And he never, Jesus never did anything by mistake. Mm-hmm. And he kept four. And it's because sometimes you're going to be hurt so bad there's going to be pieces of you that may be missing, but they don't make up the complete story of who you are. And you're not supposed to hide those scars. And not only did he take them to heaven, he commissioned a book to be written about the joy and the grace and humility that are inside those scars. And that there is good. There is. And just because somebody took something from you doesn't mean that you're missing. It just means you're unique and that there's somebody else out there who's going to need to know that you made it out, and they can make it out even through that kind of stuff. So I think that's kind of a perfect cliffhanger to call an end to our first episode. We're going to start with 18. Like, (laughs) you know, I feel like I should have a song about that or something, but um, we'll come back. And I want to hear, I'm so excited because in the next episode, we're going to talk a lot about like how you became a beauty queen, how that has to do with your story, what care is your organization with these kids. And I know you get a lot more excited when you talk about that. Maybe less tears. Yeah, the first part part. is necessary to get to the second part. Um, So just a couple of things. Please subscribe to the podcast because we want you to hear, obviously, uh, the second half and more of what happens. Um, I would love a rating. We want to know what you think. So five stars are, you know, the best. But um, I want to know what you think, and I want to know um, where you're at. And so I have a an email address that you can contact me and Josh and um, connect you with Valerie as well. If any of what we said today is just something that you just want to talk to somebody about, we're not licensed counselors. We're not therapists. We just love Jesus. And we love what he does um, and how he yeah. whoo, loves to turn things around. So um, if, you wanna, if you want to email us, it's wearecapturehope at gmail.com, all one word. And I just I also want to take the time to remind you that if you're hurting and you're broken, that there is a Savior who desperately loves you and wants to know you deeply. And he wants to heal your wounds so that your scars are no longer a source of pain, but a source of strength and um, just a reminder of victory. And so seriously, please email us. We are capturehope at gmail.com. And. Um, I would love to email with you and find out what's going on, and uh, one of us will get back to you. But that is all for today. And so I'm Rebecca. And I'm Josh. And I'm Valerie. And we'll see you next time.
I'm Rebecca Edwards. And I'm Josh Edwards. And I'm Valerie Watley. Um, this is episode two, and we are actually um, on part two of Valerie's story. So if you have not listened to episode one, then stop. Do not listen to this episode because part of it won't make sense. Um, and go back and listen to the first part. Um, we started a lot about information about Valerie as a child. So I do want to give like a brief warning to our listeners that there is definitely some triggering stuff in what we're talking about. But uh, again, if you listen into episode one, you'll hear Valerie's thoughts on um, making sure that that doesn't automatically mean you give up listening. So uh, we basically got to the point you were 17 years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to start out kind of at that point in your life. But I'm really excited to let people know a little bit more about what you do today and like why you're such a valuable resource to people. So um, yeah, we'll just get started. So when you turned 18, what what was your 18th birthday like? Um, about my birthday is in March. And my May, birthday's in March. Yeah. What day is your birthday? 27. Oh, March babies. I'm yeah. the fifth. Anyway, sorry, not important. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Um, and so, and now her husband is distracting me because he's looking at her. And he's well, now I have to cut like, that out. It's personal <laughs> information. I can't let random people hear what yeah. their birthdays are. Okay, sorry. No, you're fine. Wait, that's on Facebook. Never mind. It's not personal. Go ahead. <laughs> anyway, we're now we're really going to have to cut all that out. Yeah. <laughs> when, how do I, how do I, she had gotten angry at me. This is your mom. Yeah, my my. My mom got, yeah, my birth mother got mad at me and she wanted to make a point. So she walked me over to the kitchen and flipped the calendar up to March, which is my, when my birth month. And she put her finger on my birthday and she said, I bet you, you think this means that you're going to be 18 years old and you get to leave. So just so we're clear, that's not what it means. It means that I'm going to get to do to you the one thing I've always wanted to get to do to you, and that is take you into this room. And she pointed to her bedroom, and she said, two of us are going to go in, and one of us is going to come out, and it's not going to be you. And I won't get picked up for child abuse because I'm going to beat the living hell out of you. Um, and she liked to make you wait. Um, like I said, she didn't make threats. She made promises. So... And she had already beaten me with a two-by-four, so I, I knew she was working herself up into it anyway. Um, I had seriously thought and contemplated suicide at that point. I had um, given some of my stuff away to what few friends I had and had decided on what I was going to do, why I wanted to do it, what point I wanted to make. I wanted to hurt her like she had hurt me. So how could I do all these things that you you think of, or at least I thought of? And my best friend Stephanie had told a teacher, Mr. Campbell, who was my science teacher. And Mr. Campbell alerted the guidance counselor, and she... Ended up calling my birth dad, and he came to the school, and he was crying and sniveling and snobbling, what he always does. And 
said he didn't know that I was hurting that bad, and he was so sorry that I was hurting that bad, and he let me drive home. He had a yellow, a canary yellow Mustang in 1964. Very rare. And it ran like a top. And he let me drive it home. And I went to my aunt's house. She was living a trailer up from us. And I could hear them yelling at one another. And him yelling, and then she would yell. And she... After they got through yelling at one another, she came up to my aunt's house. And she said, Val, I want you to come out. I want to talk to you for a minute. And in my house, you never talked back. You, you didn't say anything because yeah. she thought that was talking back. She yeah. said you were talking back. You get a bloody nose. I want, I want to talk to you a minute. And I go outside to the back. And she says, I fixed it with your dad. Good try. Um, next time you think you want to kill yourself, let me know. I'll make sure you get it right. So, I got my um, my report card, looked at it. It said that I was going to be 18 and in the 10th grade again. So that was clue one that school wasn't going to work. And uh, I went to school um, on a school bus. I, I packed everything I had in a trash bag and one of those cheap, hefty bags. And I got on the school bus and I, I left. Wow. And that, I have a question. That's not the, that's not the first time you thought about suicide, right? No. Had you tried, had you attempted suicide as a younger kid? Um, yeah, when I got out of the orphanage and, um, God had given me back, uh, Trisha Ann let me know. She, she told me that, um, if I thought God loved me, then, um, the answer to that was no, because she was still in control. Wow. And I had been baptized. How long after you moved out? Like, when you left and just pulled away, did it take a while to hit you that you were, like, safer? Um, did no. you feel safer? I guess no. that's probably the first question. No, not not at first, because she would show up at my job sometimes. Um, I worked at Captain D's um, there in Franklin. You got the bank, the old Bank of America, and then you got Captain D's at that, at that red light um, down from Sonic. And she would come through the drive-thru sometimes. So I quit that job, and I got a job where Kroger used to be. And she would come in, and she'd shop and go by me. Just to let me know that even though I wasn't there, doesn't mean that she couldn't. She just couldn't let it go. Mm -hmm. So um, I finally got a job where she couldn't have access to me. And... Um, I, I made friends. I found out I could make friends. I found out people did like me. and Imagine that. Yeah, so I made friends, and um, I stayed on couches for a long time. I'd take my little trash bag with me, stay at a friend's house a couple days, say, hey, Mom, this, this girl I just met, she's going to come spend the night. Okay, sure. And then I'd sneak in my trash bag and um, did that for a few months. 
until my friends and I uh, saved up enough money to. I lived in a. I lived in my car for a while. I got a car, a 1979 Cordova, and I slept in the back seat. Um, and I stayed in it for a while, and because I, I didn't like asking anybody for anything or having anybody take care of me, because I didn't want to have to ask. You didn't like that. Like you're still you're cool with it now. Then yeah, <laughs> sorta. <laughs> I, but yeah, then my girlfriends and I um, we saved up enough money. I moved out of my car and moved into an apartment, and I've been moving on up ever since, just like George and Wheezy. <laughs> so life, I mean, improved at that point. In a I, lot of ways. I started to learn. Um, there were some things that I knew that certain people should, that kids should not know. Yeah. But there was a lot I did not know. Um, everyday living skills, I didn't know. I knew how to cook for seven or six. I knew how to clean. Um, but I didn't know how to have social skills. Um, I was never allowed to do anything social at school. Mm. Um, it's another thing that they do to keep you isolated. So I had to learn how to do that. I had to learn. Yeah. Um, but I'm a quick study. I, I learn pretty fast. Uh, it's one of the things to having a, a, a slight disability like dyslexia. Um, you overcome it, and you can learn quicker. Yeah. And so for me, it, I'm pretty quick at learning. And so, yeah, I just... I'm going to throw a really personal question at you, and mm -hmm. you can not answer mm -hmm. if you don't want to. But um, I know you, we said in the last episode that, like, you were molested, you were raped, and that was, like, a pretty common thing as a child and growing up and stuff. So as an adult, when you're on your own, did that affect the way that you had relationships, like, romantically? Like, Aww. is that, am I allowed no, to ask that? that? No, you're, well, we'll get into later how come my life is an open book um, because kids ask that question. Yeah. They want to know. Um, the boys that I had talked to at the level two lockdown, um, they pulled me to the side afterwards. And the one who had been shot, mm -hmm. their question is always going to be, am I going to be like my mom and dad? Mm. Is this going to ruin me? Yeah. And the answer is no. No, it's not. Um there are certain times, and this is a particular conversation that we might, um, if someone has a question about it, it, it probably needs to be a, a private question because the boys, males, have a really hard time with being sexually molested and relationships and that question. Yeah. And it hurts. Um, and I really don't like talking about it. Yeah, that's okay. And, um, you know, boys don't cry. Boys don't talk. Boys don't tell. Be a man. Toughen up, you know. Uh, or you should cry all the time. You should be overly sensitive. You should, you know, everybody's always trying to tell a young one that's a boy what he should and shouldn't do. And probably what people need to do is just let him alone and let him have an opportunity to, to, to kind of walk for a minute by himself and then give him a little bit of help until he can learn to walk and then always be a sounding board for him. But if he doesn't want to tell, you don't ever force it. And when yeah. it comes to the sexual molestation and me personally, I love men. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and I considered myself, when I first decided I chose to lay with someone, I considered myself a virgin. Um, and I would like yeah. to affirm that, too. When someone takes from you what you didn't give away, I don't think that counts. So just to affirm, like, <laughs> yeah. I think that that yeah. was, I um, agree with that. Like, I, I understand. I came, um, the physical touching and, and that type of aspect, it never caused me to have uncomfortable flashbacks because of that particular act, because I had flashbacks all the time. They would, they would never you know, pick and choose um, until, like, I became a manic depressant, and then they'd hit me out of the blue. Um, but I had been living with them for so long. It would just— How do you describe them, like, the flashbacks? You always have the same, like, metaphor of the— It's like a black-and-white movie reel that plays, and there's no sound. Um, and But you will hear something, and it will remind you— um, and you will smell something, and it will take you instantly back, even if you've forgotten about it. There are some things that are not meant to be remembered, mm -hmm. and some there are some crosses that that God and Christ carried for you for a reason, and they were too much for you to have to carry, and you should let them be. Yeah. Um. Or if someone would walk behind me in a particular way, I would I would automatically flinch because they would I just naturally assume that they were gonna clock me upside the head. Yeah, you used to <laughs> so, so there were learning curves. But um no, I I am okay with who I am. Yeah. And um, in that particular aspect of, of my personal life. But it is a question that is asked by other kids um, who ask me what it's like. Is it going to be okay? Am I going to be okay? And the answer is yes. It, it may not be overnight, but yeah. So how old were you uh, when the flashbacks started to go away? And why did that happen? Uh... I was in my late 20s, um, and I'd always had them. I had both of my daughters. They were very small, and I was having trouble. How old were you when each of them were born? Um, I'm just trying I, to time Chris, Chris was born when I was 21, and Amanda was born when I was 23. Okay. Um, and I had five surgeries um, total in that span. Um, they had told me when I first went, I decided to have sex. Mm -hmm. I went to go with birth control because mm -hmm. I was not ready. Uh, and if I chose, I wanted to have some control freak issues, of course. <laughs> um, and I had gone to um, the health department. And they had asked on this sheet of paper, you know, when was the last time you had your period and all these other things. Uh, and one of them was, how many times have you been sexually active? And um, I told the truth. And the nurse looked at me and said, honey, uh, because of the number of times and because of the number of different people, and you never got pregnant, you probably cannot get pregnant. And I took that to heart. And it was the truth. I didn't get pregnant until 
I met my husband. And then he could sneeze and I'd get pregnant at the drop of a hat. <laughs> and um, it just turned out that uh, some things that they did to me because I was so little on the inside made it hard for me to carry them full term. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up having surgeries uh, to kind of shore up some areas in order to get my two girls that I have here and one that I have in heaven um, to full term. Chris didn't make it full term. She, I had her when she was six months. I was six months along. Wow. Um, she was very, very preemie. Amanda was full term, so I was very blessed with her. Um, so sorry, I interrupted yeah. your story. No. So you were in your late twenties. So yeah. you had two little ones. Yeah, I had this them point. back to back plus the surgeries, and 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 your body does normal things, and uh, the flashbacks were really, really hard, and they would never just turn off. It was just constant, 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 pound, pound, pound. And I needed to have a break from them. So I had done what anybody else I assume would do is I went to my pastor and I told him, I really need some help. This is what's going on. He said, don't worry about it. We've got some ladies in church and they will contact you. And I waited for the whole week and never received a phone call. Um, I went back to him the second time explained to him I didn't receive a phone call. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. We have some ladies. A week went by, nothing. So I checked that off my list. I said, okay, God, not only did those ladies not call me, apparently I don't need to be in that church. So I pulled myself out of church there. And I did the next best thing was I went to my Bible and I looked up at the Ceiling, I said, okay, Lord, this is the message you're going to have me for today. Open up my Bible, just blindly close my eyes and put my finger down on it, and that's the message. And it was about a tree, and it had nothing to do with what I needed. And so <laughs> I checked that one off. I said, that's not working. So I made an appointment with a local psychiatrist because we were a new family starting out. We did not have any money, and um, I wanted to—I was seeking— a way to get the flashbacks to stop. Mm -hmm. So I went to the psychiatrist, and literally on the way, I was holding the steering wheel, and I was looking for a sign in the sky, thinking that he was going to bless that moment. Didn't show up. I went in. She asked me what I wanted from the sessions, and I told her I didn't want to be treated. Um, I didn't want pills. I tried everything. I tried the pills I, from the cabinets. I tried the drugs. I tried the alcohol. None of that worked. I didn't want to be treated. I wanted to be healed. And she told me um, very honestly that they're not in the healing. Um, they're in the treating because they cannot heal. And, of mm. course, they can't. Only God can. Yeah. Um, she didn't say that, though. <laughs> um, and she had me say what I wanted, and I said, I want the flashbacks to stop. That's really what I want. I want to be able to put them in a box. When I say you go into that box, control issues, <laughs> um, I want them to go in a box, put a lid on it, put it on the shelf in, in my mental closet, and I don't want a door on my closet. And if I want to revisit it, I take it down, open it up, look at it, and then I put it back up on that shelf, and it stays there until I say so. It can't come and get me whenever it wants to. She, about three weeks later, sent me some stuff in the mail to review that was against my faith uh, that she felt like I might need to look at. And I waited until our next session to explain to her that I am okay. 
with being with my husband. Mm-hmm. And I don't need to read other people's struggles while I'm trying to drill with my own. And I really appreciate that, but apparently she wasn't working out either, so check next. Um, during this whole time, though, she had had me write um, on postcards, post-it notes, uh, well, if I have a flashback, write it down. And she said, get you about 50. Well, I bought a jumbo pack of 150 and I ran out. Mm-hmm. Because what ended up happening to me is when I would remember one and I'd spend time writing it down, there would be another one. And then It'd another bring one. the flood, and, yeah. Yeah, and it was just, it was, I didn't bathe, I didn't clean the house, I didn't really watch the girls. I just sat in a corner just rocking back sobbing because it was just like, oh, my gosh. And my husband had come to me and said, Valerie, you know what, that's it. I've already talked to my parents. Um, I'm thinking about a divorce. You're not in a good place. Um, this is happening. This is happening. This is happening. And I told him, I said, okay, but just do me a favor. Don't do like my mom did and play Russian roulette with me. And I wake up one day and, and think, is this the day? And I go through the whole day and it's not. And then I wake up the next day. Is this the day? So if you're going to do it, just do it. He went to sleep. I went into the bathroom and wailed all over the commode, crying, crying and sobbing. And um, I told God the truth that um, apparently I was afraid that I was going to be one of those people that you see pushing a buggy in a metropolitan area. And that from far away, if you were to see me, you'd think I was all there. But the closer that you get to me, you notice that there's a piece of me that's missing. And I told God I felt like that's where I was going and I felt like I was going to lose my spirit my soul, and that I had been struggling to protect it, to save it, and Satan was just wailing all on it, and that I had managed to do more damage than good, so would he please take my soul? I asked him to see it for what it was and just take it, protect it, because I was okay with my husband having my kids, I was going to be okay with everything. I just wasn't going to be okay with with him winning. Um, got up the next day. Uh, I, I, I had showered, cleaned up the house, played with the girls. And for two weeks, that was my routine. And I had a flashback about two weeks afterwards. And I was just totally devastated. I couldn't even remember... I, I was so shaken. I was confused. Why was this one bothering me? I'd had it a million times. It never affected me before. What's going on? And that's when it hit me. It had been two whole weeks since I'd had a flashback. Two whole weeks. And I didn't notice it. And that's wow. why I was sobbing. Because I, when God comes in, when you ask him to come in and touch you, and, and that's not just all of what he did. Uh when he comes in and touches you, and you are married, and you are one, you are no longer individual. You are, but in a sense, you're not. You are one. And when he come in, and when he came in and he took those flashbacks away, I didn't realize that I'd been getting up and going and taking a shower and making coffee and taking care of the kids. I had no clue. Mm. I didn't even know. When God does something for you, it is not some big, gigantic, electric pow. It is a very gentle, easy. 
And it's so beautiful. And my husband came in from work, and he saw me. I was at the kitchen sink on the ground. I was boohooing snots like brawny pepper towels couldn't cure. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he goes, and you could see it on his face, the defeated look. It just came in. And he said, okay, what happened? He said, crap, what's going on? And I told him. And he sat down at the kitchen table, and he said, you know, I haven't thought about divorce in two whole weeks. It's never even crossed my mind. Because when you're one and he heals one, he heals both, which is what made my divorce so devastating. Um, but I now do have that gift to be able to have those things come into my life. Um, I can handle them for the most part. Um, I take my flashbacks. Yeah. Yeah. I take my cray cray out of the closet (coughs) and um, I throw on a boa with it. And I got a skeleton in the living room, went on the front porch waiting to visit you. But in my closet is no skeletons anymore. Um, And there's no door. There's just a crown and a and a sash, and a pair of pretty shoes, and seasonal wear. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Of course. So it always, like, strikes me as fascinating, because I feel like other than the first time you got baptized, I feel like you didn't have, like, necessarily, like, these huge encounters with God, which is interesting. You say, like, the thing about the gentle thing, because some of the times I've encountered God has been these, like, massive lightning strike things, like, (laughs) where you literally feel knocked out, and you're like, okay. But (laughs) I think it's so cool that God's such a gentleman, and he knows exactly what we each need individually, and, like, like, for you, there weren't these, like, huge, crazy moments. It was more like he just was with you and he was gentle and and made things happen but it's also fascinating to me that you even are a believer like you like just the the fact that you did I can't I know that it's God because it's miraculous and supernatural because I can't imagine in my own like self thinking yeah I could go through that move out when I'm 18 years old and then you know. Follow God, like that. It, it like doesn't even compute. But was that ever even like a big question for you, or was that just like an understood like you knew him, like he was real, and so of course. Well, I didn't have to be dunked a second time. It took. Yeah. Yeah. Man. It did. It was just um, learning how to walk with him through the hard stuff, and um, I would really get mad at him sometimes and just yell at him, and I'd have these intense conversations where I was so angry. Because I couldn't understand why he was leaving me there. And you know, when you have your, your, your scars, you can either count your bruises or you can count your blessings. And I was really good at counting bruises. Uh, and I, I would point him out to him, you know. It, it wasn't like it wasn't good enough that you had to have me be sexually molested. You know, why couldn't you have just done that to me? Why couldn't that have just been it? Yeah. You know, that would have been so nice. <laughs> But no. And I actually had this conversation. I was yelling at him and, and when I was like 15, 16 years old, I was so angry because he would not take me out of that negative situation. And I was I was struggling to try to find a way to stay alive. It's not that I, I wanted to commit suicide so I would die. It's just that living in that place was just so hard. And I, I really had such a hard time because I couldn't find him. 
And he would allow me to continue to be more and more hurt. And I just couldn't understand. I was so angry. I was so mad at him that he would leave me there. And it wasn't just the sexual molestation. It was the beatings. You know, why couldn't he just let me have me be beaten? You know, I'd be good with that. Why couldn't he let me just be neglected and have the whole speech thing and, and, and all the stuff that she did mentally? You know, I would have been good with that. I would have been good with just the neglect, but he had to give it all. And I was so angry, and I'm like, why, 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 why? And when I stopped having the flashbacks, and I went to go begin to walk with him, and I was searching for a way in which to, which is crazy. It's just totally, I, can, I don't know how to explain it to you other than, we, we all have our mountains and we all have our valleys. And once we come out of something really, really dark and we get to that mountaintop, and I would always ask God, is this it, Lord? Is this it? Are you finally done? Is this good enough for you? Are we done? And I got to my mountaintop and I said, is this it, God? Am I, am I done now? And I was, I was taking a nap. And I, I had a dream that I was on top of a mountain and something was next to me and it was standing right with me and there were these things floating around this mountaintop and they were happy, they were soaring, they were so jubilant. They were tethered to the mountain though. Um, and I, I looked at whatever was next to me and I said, is this it? Is this my next step? And then it turned me and I looked down into where I had come out of in the valley. It was dark. It was horrible. And I could see ugly. And without a second thought, I chose to go back down. And I think for me, what that said to me was that once we are given the opportunity to be released, we're not going to be truly, truly released until we go home to our Father and He wraps us in His arms. We still have a job to do, but there are some things that are just so painful. You do have a glorious and jubilant opportunity. You can decide. You can either go back down in, but that's not always safe and it's not always good. And if you decide not to, be okay with that. Know that you're going to be joyous and you're going to, you're going to fly and that we will all be released when we get to go home. And it's good there, no matter which choice you choose. And I decided that I was going to go into the community and try to help. And I wanted to go in and, and get involved with child abuse. And that's where it started for me. So something that like, I already know the answer to this question, but if Jesus showed up in the room right now and, like, laid out two options for you then mm-hmm. and said, okay, option A, everything's the same. Mm-hmm. You have to wake up on day one of your life, live the whole thing the same, but knowing the impact that you're going to have in the future and do it all again. Mm-hmm. Option B, did I say option A the first time? Mm-hmm. Option B, you get to wake up on day one of your life and you get to have— like the family you always wished you had Mm -hmm. with a mom and dad who loved and empowered and cared for you Mm -hmm. and where you were never molested and where you were never raped. And that wasn't part of your story. And you also didn't have the knowledge that you do to help the children that you do. Which option do you pick? Oh, I already chose. I chose to go down. I chose to go back. 
Um, and I didn't even hesitate, which was the one thing that kind of spooked me the most is that I didn't even, I was just, okay, I'm going. <laughs> um, and, and it's been a very scary walk going back down in and coming back out. It's painful. You're going to get hurt again. Um, it's never going to be a moment where these times are not going to be magically erased. Right. They're not. You're going to have these things you're going to have to deal with. And it doesn't mean that it hurts any less. It just means that you can handle it a little bit better every time. But again, it's not always safe and good. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody should do that. We have, that's a personal walk that you have with God. I mean, you just have to have that. And you have to be okay with it. If it's not something you should do, you have to be okay with yeah. that. So after late 20s, we mm-hmm. go through getting rid of some of these flashbacks, like God helping you see that he's taking you there. So at that point, what was the course that led you to, like, telling your story for the first time and that becoming something that wasn't just internal? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I thought that God wanted me to go back to school because I didn't even graduate high school. And if I was going to go back and serve, I needed to at least understand what in the world I was doing. So I'll go back to school. Those are the natural things I think a lot of us look at as an option. And I listed off all the reasons to God why I couldn't go to school. I'm dyslexic. I'm not smart. I freak out on tests. I'm going to fail. All these things I put up to him. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I don't think I can do that. And I was in the local mall when we had one in Columbia. And I was with my mother-in-law. And there was this woman sitting in the middle of the mall with a crown on top of her head. And she was selling baked goods for a place called um, Place of Hope. Mm-hmm. It's for um, drug addicts who are trying to have rehabilitation. And um, she was raising money for that and awareness for that. I just saw somebody who was gorgeous. And I wanted to go say hello. And my mother-in-law said, you better not go over there. Pageants are bad, and they're rigged, and, <laughs> and you know, Lord would never want, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I told, she said, if you go up there, I'm going to leave. And I said, well, then you better go ahead and get ready to leave because I'm going because I want to see what it's about. I asked her how hard pageantries were, what was it like, you know, and she said, they're a lot harder than you think, sweet pea, and it ain't about being pretty. Um, but you're kind of cute. If you think you might want to do pageants, you can come talk to me. Here's my card. I went home, said, okay, God, am I supposed to do pageantry? I've never walked in high heels. I have never worn makeup. (laughs) Don't wear it right now, (laughs) which is why I'm thanking God it wasn't videotaped. She still looks beautiful. Don't listen to that. (laughs) Um... I got married in a hot pink maternity gown. Um, <laughs> oh, my gosh. How have I never wow. seen pictures of this? <laughs> yeah. I got married in a, in, a, in a maternity dress. It was hot pink. And I pulled the constable. He was brush hogging. And he, I pulled him off his tractor and said, hey, will you marry us? And he said, yeah. So I got married by a man with one shoe of his overalls inside one shoe. And the other leg was out. And my brothers and my sister were my witnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was telling God, I can't do that. 
Lord, you gotta, you gotta be pretty. Oh my God, I've had two children and you're gonna put me in a bathing suit. <laughs> Jesus, let me tell you why I can go to college. I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. I can do this. <laughs> She's like, I'll take that back on. I'll do that now. Let me take that. And the Lord just let me know, no, nope, no. And I entered into the pageant at the young age of 32. <laughs> And Perfect time to start. Yeah, you know. Uh, I did two pageants. The first one, I had the time of my life. I'd never done anything like that before. And so I got to wear high heels, and I got to wear a hot pink fuchsia kind of colored dress. And Were you a 32-year-old honey boo-boo? No. <laughs> no, that's the, that's the thing. All the other women that I was competing with, they just stopped and looked at me and they said, oh, honey, you're new, aren't you? <laughs> and I said, yeah, how can you tell? Um, and not only did I not win, I didn't place. I had the time of my life, though, mm-hmm. and I found some things out about myself, and one of them is that I'm very self-competitive, mm-hmm. very self-competitive. I went home, and I couldn't sleep at night because I couldn't understand why it was upsetting me that I didn't do better, and it was because I really had not given myself total control over, <laughs> over um, really understanding what God wanted me to do. I really didn't take him seriously. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do it again. And I went to church um, because I've been going to Grace Nazarene in Columbia, Tennessee, on and off for nearly 30 years. And I went to my women's small group, and I said, you guys, I know this is going to sound so crazy, but I'm going to do it again. I think the Lord really wants me to do it. And he's going to take something as cheesy (laughs) as this and his glory is going to be found there and my small groups told me okay we're going to back you 110 percent um holly tkachik was in my small groups and she just happened to be a reporter for the local newspaper and she said we believe in you we believe in the lord he you know in the bible never at one time did god ever use anyone who was perfect hey that's true and you know, you, God doesn't need perfect. He needs persistent. And are you willing to follow him, even if it's to put you on the stage in a bathing suit? <laughs> so, you know what? Never at any time am I going to turn my nose up to God and act like what he tells me to do is stupid or futile or childish. If you put me there, I'm going to take it very, very seriously. Yeah. And that's what I was most upset with is that I didn't take it seriously. So I went to my brothers and my baby sister and I said, I'm going to do it again. Um, I know now what God wants me to do. He's told me I'm going to win it. And I wasn't men in arrogance. He just told me that that's what he wanted me to go do. And I had to go do it because I had to learn to be obedient to him, even if it made no sense. And... I told my siblings I was going to tell, and we had never told. And the one thing that I cannot do is tell my story without including my siblings because we've been through everything together. Yeah, it'd be so incomplete. And so I went to my siblings separately because I didn't want to go as a group. And then one said yes, and the other two feel like they have to because one said yes. (laughs) 
Um, I wanted them to have free will. It's very important to me. So I went to my oldest brother first, and my big brother said about an hour after just sitting totally silent in my kitchen and chewing his fingernails down to a nub, and he finally said, yes, but Valerie, if we do this, we've got to go inside the schools because that's where they are because that's where we were. Then I went to my baby sister and I asked her, and she said yes, but no last names because we had gotten married and my two, my brothers did not share the same last name as us. So she felt like, okay, that had, we have a semblance, some sense of a line of privacy, but yes, let's go. And then I asked my little brother, Newman, and you guys will probably need to edit this out. But my little brother has always said, if you can laugh, just even if it is crude, rude, and sociably unacceptable, do it because you'll feel better. And when I called him and I asked him if I could tell, he didn't even skip a beat. He said, number one, I don't study on it. I've, I've gotten past it. It's not a big deal to me. So if you want to do it, cool, go ahead. Um, but you need a reality check. Number one, I grew up with you, so I did see you naked, and your boobs aren't that great. <laughs> and you know there's going to be women standing up there who've spent at least six grand on those babies. Two. Wow. Brutal honesty. <laughs> two, you're broke. And there are more women who spend more money on their dresses than you will ever be able to spend on your groceries for a year. Mm-hmm. So... You go ahead and you try it. I give you my blessing. And real encouraging. Such support. overwhelming yeah. support. <laughs> Dude, um, I told him the truth. I said I went to this thing called Boot Camp for Beauty Queens. And they've taught me how to walk in my shoes and what duct tape is for. And by the way, God <laughs> told me I'm going to win. So when I win, are you going to be okay with it, Newman? And he said, when you make your first million, I want to cut. <laughs> and I said, okay. So. Is Newman yeah. the sibling you have that's uh, the least, like, social in his life? Or is that? That's Carrie. Okay. Yeah, Carrie. Um, Carrie's never been married. I think Carrie's had maybe three girlfriends. He is in his mid-50s now. And what a lot of people are not going to understand, but some of us will, uh, Carrie takes care of our parents. He wow. still lives with them, and he takes care of them. And he will take care of them until they die, or he dies. Wow. Yeah, so his place in heaven is going to be pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be pretty awesome. Um, but so he does it because it? he loves them. Yeah. Yeah, he loves them. And and that's hard for some people to understand. It's like, how could you love someone who could be so mean? And that was a question that my parents had uh, when they picked up the newspaper and saw that I'd won. Because I didn't tell anybody um, outside my siblings that I was going to go and compete. Um, and that I was going to tell. And... But I wasn't going to tell because it was something that was sad. It was because 
my siblings and I, we wanted to be the one thing that we never had for somebody else. And that was a way in which to be a hero and to help. And we didn't have that. So we wanted to give that to kids. And that's why we tell. It's not to have somebody to be mad at our parents or think anything ill about them. Um, that's between them and God. And I don't have a role in that. We tell our story because there are going to be some kids who are going to look at me with what? A crown on my head and a sash. And they're going to think there's no way this person's going to be able to understand. But I can promise you there were more boys that wore my crown than girls. Because I gave my crown and I gave everything that I did to God. For whatever purpose he wanted out of me, I gave it. And I gave my crown. And it's broken still to this day because boys wore my crown more than girls did. And I would get to go home and I'd get to call my siblings and say, you'll never believe what God did today. Hmm. You'll never believe what this kid came out and asked me. And then we'd get to talk about how we felt and it became something that allowed us to have hard conversations that we'd never had before. Wow. And um, I, Holly followed me around from the newspaper for a year, how to build what we wanted to build, what we wanted to do with what God had given us to do. And I went out um, the first time I didn't place, much less win. The second time uh, I won five awards. And the curse of death. I won the curse. Um, the curse is miscongeniality. So for any girl who's thinking that you, <laughs> if you've been told that if you win miscongeniality, you will never walk away with a crown, I did. <laughs> um, and um, I, Lisa Spencer was one of my, uh, she's a local news anchor here in Tennessee, and she was one of my judges. And it didn't dawn on me that she was going to make the announcement on the TV the next morning. I know uh, what you're about to say. <laughs> <laughs> because my siblings and I had not told our parents, um, because it's like Newman said, oh. I had to win. Yeah. I had to, first I had to win it. And um, Holly had been following me around for a year, getting ready to write this newspaper article. And she had already written it and was ready for me to win. And I won. And you'd think winning would be like this jubilant thing. Hey, yeah, it's cool. I called my siblings and all, four, all three of us, all four of them were just really, really quiet. And Newman was the only one who asked any questions. And he, he was like, okay, uh, Number one, duct tape is a god. <laughs> and two, when when is it coming out? When is the article coming out? And I said, um, number one, God had the pageant happen in April, and April is Child Abuse Awareness Month. Hmm. Two, I didn't win because I was the prettiest. I did not win because I was the nicest. I won because I had two judges out of the four who were survivors. Wow. And they didn't tell me until I sat down at the winner's dinner table. 
I was not meant to win a crown. I was meant to show what a crown really looks like. And I told him that the article had already been written, um, of course, and that they'd probably put it out in a few days. We didn't know that Lisa was going to make the announcement on TV and that she was going to show my photo and was going to talk about me. Lisa didn't mention the child abuse. She just said, here's your new. And, and I, I didn't win the Macy's Day parade of beauty pageants. <laughs> I didn't win, you know, the Mrs. America. I won a small title because God can do a lot with Dollar General. <laughs> and he did a lot. She left out child abuse. And I'd gotten home two days later, and our phone was ringing, and it was my birth parents. And I could hear them. We had caller ID, and I looked down, and I told my, my uh, husband, so I can't take that phone call. He said, that's okay, I got it. And he answered it, and you know, being a man, he was able to, you know, be stoic and polite um, always respectful. And yes, and I could hear them. They were like, yay, she finally did something. Holy, you know, wow, this is, this is great. And he just said, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Was that the first time they'd ever acted proud of you? Yeah. Okay, yeah. continue. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that lasted. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so they drove down to my local town in Columbia. Um, they crossed the county lines and they picked up the entire, my dad picked up a stack of newspapers and bought the whole stack, walked up proud as could be to the register. And I was on the front cover and he's like, that's my daughter. That's my daughter. And the guy at the cash register <laughs> Had read. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he already knows yeah. the story written in this newspaper yeah. by this guy. And, yeah. Oh, my. And, and so he gave my father the entire stack. Didn't say a word. Mm-mm. And Larry Jackson took them to the car, and Trisha Ann had a copy, and he had a copy, and they read it. Um, and then he called my brother Nimmin absolutely livid. We knew it was coming. And he was absolutely livid. And he was screaming and yelling. And I asked him, and I said, what, what, do you, what did he say? Are you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm fine. He asked, uh, he said, Dad wanted to know why we hated them so much, why we didn't love them. All they did was try to do the best they could for us. We didn't love them. And... Newman said that he told Daddy that it wasn't that we didn't love them. It's that we couldn't respect them, mm -hmm. but that we would always love them. And we didn't tell because of them. We told because there are going to be more kids, and we wanted to stop it. And that's why. And I think that's very powerful because the Bible specifically even talks about how the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy and how when we speak what the Lord has done, that we're prophesying and telling other people that that situation can change in their life and that God can do it exactly for them and bring full freedom. Mm -hmm. 
full and complete and in a loving way. There's My granny used to tell me all the time, Bella K, honey, there's a right way and a wrong way. And she also used to tell me that you never grow an inch by stepping on anybody. Mm. So we still to this day, we when I tell people, I, I really don't want them to be left with, oh, you know what, she's just wanting a pity party. This is one thing that students keep coming back to me. So I don't tell because I don't want anybody to feel sorry for me. I don't tell because I, you know, they're going to look at me funny. They're going to say something. I, that's why I don't tell. I don't need additional burdens put on me. I don't need attention. That's why I don't tell. And because of that, that's why we tell. To show them that if you do it the right way, it can not only be liberating and freeing for you, but it can actually change your entire family. And going back to my great-grandmother, <laughs> it can change your heritage because your heritage does not define who you are and your legacy. You do. You have, you have that. And we get to do that now, and that's beautiful. I have some children that will come to me, and they'll say, you know what, Mama V, my family said they're so mad at me because I told. And the Bible says you're supposed to love and honor thy mother and thy father, and this is going to hurt the family, and you don't love them, and you shouldn't tell. And I always look at them, and I, and I tell them the truth. My siblings and I, we honor my mom and my dad. Because when we never want to be something where if our parents hear about us, they're going to know, yeah, it's going to cover what they did. But they don't have one, two, three, but four, four that made it out and love one another and love everyone else. And we want to not count our bruises, but we want to. We want to count our blessings, and we want to show people where those blessings are because he's in every bit of it. You have to show the ugly, though. You can't leave the ugly out. You just can't. So the organization that you're technically—what is your title? Because I'm CEO and founder. Yes. So you founded CARE. It's mm -hmm. uh, an acronym, C-A-A-R-E. It stands for Child Abuse Awareness Resource Education. And so— um, I want to go through like a little bit about how that works because that's like the exciting part. You've been wanting to talk about that since we started. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited! <laughs> that's the uh, that's be, the part because you. you know it's it's the one thing that I want. If my parents ever do, see, it's, you can forgive, but unless they, the the person who's harmed you or done anything to you. Unless they walk in a walk of repentance, mm -hmm. you know, there's there's a forgiveness is a two way street and you can forgive. But if it's not safe, you don't reenter. Right. And you do not place your children in a place where, you know, it's not safe just because they're your family. And we see that a lot. But I mean, I hope our parents see care. And are proud, mm. you know? I know that's a crazy thing to say, but I want to be proud. I think God's done crazier things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, CARE 
is uh, I'm the founder and CEO, and it stands for Child Abuse Awareness Resource Education. And it is exactly what it is. It's child abuse. It's awareness. It's awareness of resources. And it's an education. Um, and it is something that uh, the topic itself is one in which we, we're, we're in this circle now, but you don't hear a single child talking. And that's what my brothers and my sister did not want to have happen. We want children to be heard. We want them to be seen. Sometimes it's not safe to tell. But mm -hmm. one of the things that I have had children teach me is that kids can learn to love and forgive so fast. And they can be hurt, and you won't even know they're hurt. They'll be smiling and because they love. And... What we have learned the hard way and the long way, my siblings and I have, is that one of the most freeing things that you can do for someone is giving them an opportunity to love someone. If they can't help themselves, but because it's not safe to tell, but they can help someone else who's hurting, that's a beautiful gift that you get to give to someone who themselves is hurting. That's how you teach them what love looks like. And you don't you don't do it. You allow God to do it. You know, when my granny said, you never grow an inch by stepping on anybody, I always add, that's true. The way to find true growth, and Jesus was very poignant in teaching this, and I don't know how many people walk away with it, but one of the most beautiful gifts in his entire story was the man who had to lean down and carry Jesus' cross. If you want to know how tall you can be, Stand up and carry someone else's cross. That's when you grow. And that's part of what care is all about. A small part, but it is. So one one thing that's like a feature of care that I think is so fascinating. Um, did you want to say something? One of the things that I asked uh, Rebecca to do, when she told me that you had a hard time reading, and actually you didn't even want to finish it, no, not at all. <laughs> um, I said, okay, I want Josh to write my intro to the book. You didn't tell me that yet. <laughs> um, and the reason why I want you to do it is because there's going to be people who are going to feel the way you feel. And they need to hear from somebody because I don't know what it's like to be you. And... Because, and one of the things that Rebecca and I have is, and it's not fair, but it's so beautiful, is that I'm so proud that she was abused because I would never. And she's like on the top of my God's gift list. But the thing about it is, is that it's what God is asking to do is not going to get done unless we have everybody's voice included. And even if it's uncomfortable, and even if it's sad, and even if it's so damn depressing, you're like, I don't want to pick this book up. I need you to, because these kids are going to need you. It's always really interested me. It was so important that they were the face of everything you do. The eight? Yeah. And that's <laughs> like, because it's so counterintuitive. Like, people don't run organizations that way at all. And, well, that's God. And you're, you're, you, <laughs> as a person, are 
against the flow to begin <laughs> with, you know? Yeah, he was just In the best way. In a good way. <laughs> Absolutely. And so I just wanted you to talk about these kids and, like, why you chose them. and The eight? Yeah. The babies? Yeah. Um, well, it started out with just one. Um, when I After I won and everything was done, you're only supposed to have the crown and the title for 12 months. That's it. And then somebody else new comes. It ended up that I had the title for a year and a half because it was never talked about. You know, oh, my gosh, we've got this beauty queen that can come into a room and make kids cry, laugh, and they're wanting to take a stick and <laughs> charge. <laughs> and, and I wanted to build a monument. And I wanted, and I thought it was just going to be a one plaque. Again, I think I have control over everything. And God just like totally, you don't know nothing. Blows your ideas out oh, of the water. Well, not only does he close my ideas, but he he's like, okay, you're dreaming too little. Yeah. And that's the part that scares I've the bejeebs out of me. I've never heard it, It's you're dreaming too small. Look at Cookie. Yeah, I've Get always said that to Rebecca. Yeah, you, we dreaming. need to have God-sized dreams. Yeah. If you can well, do it on your you, own, it's not God. Well, the thing is, is though I thought that the monument was going to be just a little plaque that you see, and I was, and, and but I needed a baby, and because I, I I wanted to have a child to be seen, and unfortunately, Cameron had been murdered in two thousand and four. And I had done some work with law enforcement as Miss Tennessee, U.S. Continental, 2002. <laughs> and um, when I needed, when I wanted to have that face, I didn't want it to be mine. And Cameron had lost his life. His mom had already gone through the trial process and had moved to Chicago, uh, Cincinnati. I talked to then General District Attorney Mike Bottoms. I told him what I wanted, and he said, I got just the baby. But I have to get the mother's permission because by law, even in passing, a child is not given the right to be seen or heard unless the parents give them that right, even after they've died. I could share whatever was in the newspaper but I could not share his face or his name unless his parents and his dad was in prison for killing him. And because Cameron died as a direct result of child abuse. So I got a phone call a couple of days later from his mother and she did not know me, had no clue about who I was or what I was doing. I just told her I wanted to remember our son, and she said, sure. She had no idea what God was going to do. Neither did I. That little bitty plaque turned into a huge monument. They told me you couldn't get God in certain places. He's bigger than he's there in front of a swing set. They, they took me on a tour of all of the parks in the city where I live and said, you can have your monument anywhere you want. And we went up on a hill and saw the swing sets. I said, I want Cameron right there. And I went and I talked to a, one person. I said, here's what I want to do. And he said, oh, you don't want a little plaque like that? Why don't you give Cameron this? And that's when I knew. Because it was no longer, oh, Valerie, this or that. It's like, Cameron needs what? Oh, well, we're going to give Cameron a monument. And the Lord ended up giving him a huge monument. Um, his, the, the main stone... Granite piece 
the thing was going to cost $6,500, was given away for free. Um, some investors had bought it, forgot about it. It sat in the weeds for six years. And when people started passing Cameron's story, they just started giving, which is one of the most beautiful things that you can ever see. Cameron started moving in people without anybody really touching anything because that's how God works. And the monument, the granite piece, is buried there's rods going through the granite piece and then buried about nine feet into the ground. He can withstand a tornado because <laughs> <laughs> he's not moving. Uh, the local Lowe's department gave the pavers local. I had to turn people away. Everybody wanted to build. Uh, we had about 65 people come out to, to build this monument for him. Uh, People started arguing over who was going to give the cement. <laughs> anyway, so we, we had the monument built, and then Lowe's gave the pavers. Uh, Todd Tate put the pavers in, and the pavers were designed uh, to where one main paver could be pulled out and a granite paver could be put in its place if there was ever another child that needed a home. And Cameron and I started care, and his mom did not know. She had no clue. Um that she had given permission for a story to be used. Yeah. And mm. God just, just she had no clue. She, and, and you can see it in YouTube. Um, and I know that you've come to a couple of the events mm -hmm. and you've heard her speak. And she had said, you know, I never would have believed I would ever want to come and talk about my son. But, oh, my gosh, look at what God has done. I want everybody to know about my son. Wow. Because you know, she wasn't involved in what happened to him. It was the father, right? Her husband. Right? Yeah. yeah. Her, his dad. And so... Um, we, we built the monument, and then we started trying to find out how God wanted the company to work. Um, we failed twice until um, I finally learned how to listen to what he was telling me to do, which was adults had to get out of the picture and children had to be allowed to run the show. And once I got it, that's when the kids at Central High School came in, and that's when we got Baby Jack. And after Baby Jack, we got Baby Carlos. And I went from having care, having one baby, to the children stepping in and having eight. They were fighting over who could get the next baby so that they could love that baby. And then that baby, the, the families, the letters you have to write. It can't be a verbal. You have to give permission. So they had to give away their baby a second time. Um, one of the letters was written in prison in Lake Huron, Michigan, um, by his mom, uh, Baby Braylon. Baby Braylon's murder was horrific, um, and she wrote a six-page letter saying how proud she was that Braylon was going to get to be remembered for fighting back. And the children were using Braylon and remembering Braylon. They've given him a nickname. They they talk about him in colleges. They They take things that they're interested in, like law. And they look at Braylon's case, and they found out where the system let Braylon down. And then they go back and they attack the system in order to make sure that there's not another Braylon or another Cameron, another Cambria or another Alea. And that's how God just took care and exploded. And he didn't want one monument. 
He wants many monuments. He didn't want just one child. He wants every child. And he doesn't want just the children who've suffered. He wants the children who've never been hurt a day in their life, but want to fight for someone who does not have a voice. And they want to do it in a positive and a good way. And that's what we did. A lot of the kids who help you that, like, run the organization uh, aren't even victims, right? Oh, gosh, no. They're not survivors. <laughs> Sorry, survivors. That's my bad. That's a bad thing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's okay. Um, they, they were really worried at first when you take pictures of them. They were like, oh, my gosh, people are going to think I've been abused. <laughs> you know? And it's like, no, they're child advocates. And they're advocates for other children. And they're learning how to be a true advocate, have their own voice, not have somebody write something out on a piece mm-hmm. of paper and have them quote it in front of the TV. They're finding out, if you want to do music, write a mu- write a song about this. And we'll find you a mentor to work with. So I want to get into that. I love, like, the way that you, the basically the structure that CARE uses to help train these kids up and, and to change things in the long term. But I want to hit on one other thing before we get there as well. So um, not only, you know, counterintuitively, everything's so counterintuitive. It's not like people run their organizations, but I love it because it's so backwards and it's so God, like God loves to do that. So not only do you use these children, uh, uh, the ones who have died as a result of child abuse mm-hmm. as the face, um, Sorry, let me get back. I want to say it the right way. Um, Sorry, I I really. Out of 100% of the students who have taken up the cross of care, only 10%, about 10, have been hurt. We make a disclaimer. And that disclaimer, and, and the children go in and they teach. Um, they learn how to do public speaking. They put on their own, they do their own web designs to a certain, they can mess up a web design. Uh, <laughs> We've never they've done that, that happening. <laughs> um, that was our guess. When they're learning. But the thing is, is that they're learning. Um, they take phone calls from the Department of um, Health and Insurance. Because when they file for their 501c3, and they want it, by the way, um, and children are not allowed to own anything until you hit 18. You can't sign a contract. And we waited until some of them aged out so that after you hit 18, then they could come back and own the contract, yeah. the, the company, and give it back to the next one so that an adult can't take it from them and will not run it because it has to be them. And whatever they want to run after, our job is to clear the path as best we can, not do the job for them, not tell them what to do, and allow them to discover, allow them to put their hands on it, allow them the opportunity to find out who they are, tinker with it, play with it. It's okay. If you ask for something that I think is totally out of my realm, if you want to, if you want to do a podcast. <laughs> And you don't have a dime, but you have a friend, and they're beautiful, and they're amazing, and they give of their time and their self because that's how they serve. 
You never want to tell a child they cannot do something because you want to limit God because mm. you're limited. Wow. Don't limit him that way because you're going to steal someone's ability to bless somebody because mm. you limit God. Don't do that. I got it. <laughs> For the edit, this is now the part you need to cut and put back into where my question was supposed to go. <laughs> She forgot again. No, I didn't. So funny. Okay, okay. Miles is judging me. Okay. So one of the things that is also counterintuitive, not because it's a bad way to do it, but because people don't understand, is that you don't have adults around the organization because children legitimately don't have a voice. So you've said a couple of times that like a child who's abused, like you, you, well, you mentioned that like children's stories can't even be used even after they've passed and different things like that. And you, we've kind of touched on a little bit of this. So before we get into what the kids who run care today, like what they're doing to change the paradigm, I also want to hit on this for people who may not be aware. So, um, you guys do this process or it's like a training thing basically. And you call it like building your own case. Mm -hmm. If you are someone who's going through abuse and you're under the age of 18 because you can't advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I want you to kind of just briefly explain to people that might not know, Mm -hmm. what do you mean when you say kids don't have a voice and they can't stand up for themselves, like through our legal system as it stands. Mm -hmm. And then number two, like what you're doing to help teach kids you know, what to do if they're in that situation. Remind me of the two, because I'm going to go into one and I'll forget. The first yeah. one was um, what, how the the whole putting your case together. Well, how it stands right now, why they don't have a voice. Okay. Like, yeah. Okay. Why they don't have a voice is because um, the system is set up to come in and um, Begin the investigation process. Um, you, they talk to the child alone. Um, they don't really explain to the child what's happening. They just ask questions. They don't want to scare the child. They just want to ask questions to put together a case. Um, the the individuals in the state of Tennessee, and it's it's not exclusive to the United States or the world. But the system is so bad, it can't even agree on what to call itself. Mm. In the state of Tennessee, it's called the Department of Children's Services. In the state of Florida, it's called something else. In the state of New Mexico, um, in Albuquerque, I think it's the Children and Families Services. They can't even agree on what to call themselves. Right. The each county, DCS or whatever, runs its own way. No county runs the same. No casework load is the same. Nothing is the same. There is no streamlining whatsoever. It's a hot mess. And one of my students, Victoria Buchanan, had three caseworkers within a two-month time frame. So it's, it's, the burnout rate is, is atrocious. The turnover rate for caseworkers is six months. Um, they, 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 my kids... They think they want to do social work, and then they get into the system and the system and what the Lord wants you to do. Out of every single one of my students who said they wanted to do social work, they end up going into missionary. Every single one of them. It's Um, just that difficult to navigate the system? Yes, because you cannot do what your heart and your soul drive you to do because the system will not allow it. And the system will tell you it's set up for because of this legal reason and that legal reason. And the system is set up— 
we've grown this beast since 1969. The year that I was born was the year that the United States decided to look at child abuse fully as a potential criminal issue. Before, it was only seen as a... Civil, like a... Well, no, it wasn't seen as a crime at all. There was nothing. You, They didn't even... Child abuse didn't exist. <laughs> Go figure. Wow. Yeah, it didn't exist. So we didn't even start to handle this issue until 1969. So for those of you who think the system is beautiful and correct and cannot be built upon because you've created a masterpiece in less than 50 years, you might want to rethink that. Um you're not passionate about this or anything. No, not at just all. Just somebody's <laughs> two cents. Yeah, yeah, just my two cents there. <laughs> um, but when when the, the system is set up in such a way that you cannot hold it accountable to itself because it'll tell you, well, we can't tell you. Like baby Joe's case, they won't tell you where they failed because he was a baby, and so you can't share his information because he was a baby. But, like, say you have, like, I don't know, eight-year-old. Like, that's when you—that's the age you were when you went into the orphanage. So, say you're eight years old. You have someone tell you, like, hey, what's happening to you is actually not normal. This is not okay. Or, like, you realize. So, say you can just, like, call the police, and they take you away from your parents, and they charge your parents, right? Like, isn't that how it should work? Um... <laughs> I'm trying to get there because oh, we've Lord. had this conversation more than once before. Well, yeah, and I know, and, and I'm trying not to be judgmental because it is not a one department problem. It is a system problem. Right. It's a system problem with the community. It's a system problem with the church. It's a system problem with the Department of Education, with the Department of Justice, with the Department of Children's Services. It is a problem across the board. Um, well, in communication between each of these Systems trying to solve this one problem what called different names. Exactly. That's the point. So, like, it's so difficult. Well, DCS to do doesn't like law enforcement. Law enforcement does not like DCS. Caseworkers don't like cops. Cops don't like caseworkers. Um, and, and kids the, somehow get lost in the shuffle of who doesn't like who, apparently. And they and here's why they argue because they're just as passionate as I am. Don't make mm-hmm. them, don't mistake it. They are, and nobody wants to fail a baby. And by not wanting to fail a baby, they're failing a baby, and they need help. They really desperately need help. But if you think for one minute you're going to get that help from an adult, then you got it all wrong because it's not working now. So add a couple of more adults, and what's going to happen? You're going to build care the first time, and it's going to die. <laughs> You're going to build care a second time with just adults, and it's going to die. It won't work unless you add the victim base, which, by the way, this is the only crime in where the victims are not included. It's the only crime in where the victim base is not educated. It's the only crime where the victim base is not given a voice and on purpose. It is the only crime where you are told when you're a victim and you're told when you are not by society and by law. It is the only crime where this happens across the board, no matter what country you live in. It is the only crime where you have a department that is exclusively made up of just you for your issues, yet it is the only crime that we don't talk about. You don't hear about it. You think domestic violence, which I can't stand the verbiage, domestic violence, it is intimate partner abuse is bad. That costs $8 billion a year. A billion to the United States of America. 
how much do you think child abuse costs? Because we hear about domestic violence all the time. Child abuse is $124.5 billion. But we never talk about it. It is its own little beast. It feeds itself financially. There's not a judge who doesn't get paid in some way because he has to deal with these issues. There's not an attorney that's not going to make money because he has to deal with these issues. There's not a caseworker. You would think that if you've been beaten and placed in a hospital, that the cops are going to come and someone's going to get arrested and you're going to be given safety because when you go to the World Wide Web, because we all know that tells the truth, Mark Zuckerberg, and <laughs> we have to, you, you look at that and you, you're a child, and let's pretend you go to a website and it says, if you think you're going to get beaten, you pack your bags. You go over to here. We'll, we'll find you safety. We will move you to, to where they can't get a hold of you to abuse you and beat you, where they can't sexually molest you. We will give you housing. We will give you a job training. We will give you counseling. Unless you're 15 and you pack your bags and you walk down the road with a bloody face and cops pull you over. Do you know what happens to you when law enforcement puts you in the backseat of their car? They take you to juvie because you're a runaway. You're a runaway. And then it's up to, can you prove it? Well, first of all, you've got to get a cop involved. Good luck with that one. And in the state of Tennessee, we are a must-report state. So DCS is called first, and DCS caseworkers are not forensically trained. Which is where you come in with the what you guys have developed. Which well, yeah, still, the kids, it's the, the kids it. you know, it's a learning process for us because if we will be quiet long enough to listen to a child, we learn these things. Mm -hmm. And I'm blown away. I'm like, no way, you're kidding me. Victoria, you tell him what? Yeah. Savannah, I love you, baby girl. You have my own heart. Hmm. And knowing that that happened to her and she's put in juvie and then these things go, but there's this child and she had a restraining order put out against her by her abuser. She was locked up in juvie. When she got out of juvie, she finally came to school and the students were like, where have you been? She told them what had happened to her and like, well, where are you at now? You know, or who are you? Are you with a foster? You know, what's happening? Well, I'm back home. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And the students are like, what? I, I thought you said there's a, a restraining order. Well, yeah, because I'm owned. You're essentially property. You're property. Um, so they give you right back. So I, I guess what I was just wanting to get at, because I think it's a really important piece, although it's like evolving in how it works, is that you're the people that direct care and that do this, like you created this system to try to help kids learn how to build their own case. And I know we don't have time to really to go over that process of how it all works, but um, I've read over it. It's obviously part of the book that we're working on, and it's also available on the website. But you've, it will be available. It will be, yes. Sorry. Um, but there's this process basically where you're actually for the first time giving the voiceless kids who you know the system is failing an opportunity to say okay it's flawed here is the most effective way to do it you know and right. I just love that and, so and much. they don't teach the system they teach each other yeah um they teach each other how to put together their own criminal case because some of these students want to be lawyers some of them want to be cops and they start job shadowing and they find out how the system 
hasn't helped this one over here, so they take that job out. They want to be a law enforcement officer, and they want to help their friend. And when they become a cop, they're going to arrest a bunch of people. So they go and they shadow and mentor with law enforcement, and law enforcement tells them that's not how it works. Mm. Well, why not? <laughs> well, because this, this, and this. So then the children come back to the hub. Most of the companies are set up on a, on a domino effect. And what the children have actually built is a, is a circle. And they take the information of what they want to learn and what they're interested about and love. And they mentor with people outside the community who can help them learn how to do that. So they can find out if they're going to spend thousands of dollars in wasted college money. So this or is all while they're still in high school. These are junior middle, high, junior, yeah, junior it's high not high school, adults. Yeah. No, adults are, for the most part, the children um, are okay with being able to handle this this portion mm-hmm. by themselves. And they learn from their mentors, and they come back and they teach each other. And they absorb that information, and they go back out, and they do it again and again and again. And they'll say, well, Mama V, how hard is it to join CARE? And you just did. What do you have to do to join CARE? You and two or three friends. Um, This is not something that I put up. This is something that the core group, which is Victoria Buchanan, Savannah Craig, Austin Schaefer. Hold on. Didi. Say the core group again without any last names. Oh, no, it's okay. They're 18 now. Oh, okay. Sorry. Ha-ha. See? See See? there? Now you're 18. You can tell their last names. (laughs) And They're real people. Well, they're, According yeah. to the law, yeah, and I say that sarcastically, but it's sad. I don't well, mean yeah, it to be, you know, in, but and in most and and you know, so it's Victoria Buchanan, it's Raven, Austin, Dakota, Drew Ray, um, oh my gosh, Dee Dee, Chandler Potts, Courtney Potts, Jillian Potts, uh, that the the national leadership graduated from high school and then because they had been messing with care and, and playing with it and building this thing that God wanted them to build. And they would say, well, how are we supposed to do this, Mama V? And I'm like, well, I don't know. It's your company. You tell me. Uh, what's God telling you? And did you go to your God's gift list? And um, they they kind of grow to the point now where I have students who are running the company from the University of Chattanooga. Um, they're junior now. Her name is uh, Bailey. And Bailey and Manika grew the company into three separate pieces. You kids can do it in school. They can do it in college. And if they don't have support there, they can do it in their own community and they don't have to have anybody's okay. They can do it right where they are. They can hang out with their friends and decide, okay, we are going to fight back. And just us three. Because God doesn't need a lot. He only needs a little to do a lot. And that's how they just, then they talk to their friends and are like, holy crap, this is really cool. Mm-hmm. And, oh my gosh, Ifoma Ike. Ifoma is putting together her piece for the kids event on the 28th. And she's doing a video of why she joined CARE. Never been hurt a day in her life. She wants to be a nurse. How does nursing field deal with issues of child abuse? What do you see? What do you do? Are you being taught? If you're not taught, what can you do later to come back and teach those kids? Because we have a pay. The way they built it is they built it to where now we have a pay it forward. And we have nurses. And big shout out to Ashley. And um, 
Ashley uh, Adams, her, her she's married now. Um, Ashley uh, graduated from Kalioka Unit School, went to nursing school with no debt, came out debt-free, went straight into her job, married um, her husband who went through nursing school debt-free. And every time I have a student who wants, who's in the Middle Tennessee area, who wants to learn about nursing, um, I send them straight to Ashley. And, okay, student, don't ask Mama V anything. You go to your mentor. You guys work it out. Then when you graduate high school and you become a nurse, your job is then to go back and help the next one out. You go back in and you help the next one out and the next one and the next one, and that's how you win. It's about changing systems. Yeah, and it seems so complicated when you first start hearing about it. Yeah. But, like, it's really just discipleship and people, mm-hmm. like, finding out what they're passionate about and how they can change the culture a little bite at a time, you know, because you're not going to change it all in one day. It's, it's not some big it. rally no. that's going to make the big difference. Mm-hmm. It's getting people in places that God's put a passion in yes. their heart. Yes. To be able to change the sphere of influence that he, of what he's put in front of them, really. Yeah, and they never really even noticed it. And the kids insisted on having the God's gift list because anybody that joins CARE, they have to do one. Um, even They even made their board of directors do a God's gift list. And you should have mm-hmm. seen the adults squirming <laughs> because they were like, and it's really, it, the God's gift list started from Wes Melcher with World Ventures. I was reading one of his MLM books, and I'm thinking, okay, Wes, you've built all these great things. I'm going to try to reach out to him. There's no way this man is going to talk to me. He, His goal is to become a billionaire. <laughs> you know, he's not going to talk to me. One of the things that God has to reteach me every day is don't limit him. Yeah. And if you're supposed to reach out, do it. But you already got to know what's the harm. And I reached out, and he, like, that, he gave me his personal cell phone number. And he's like, what do you need? And I was like, I'm reading your book, and you have this um, this list where you make out of everybody you know. Um, I want to use it, and I want to give it to the kids, but they don't want to call it the, the name you have. They want to call it God's gift list. And here's what they want to do with it. Can a kid steal your idea? And Wes said, well, it's kind of hard to steal if I give it to you. <laughs> Is there anything else in that book that they want? And I said, I don't know. And he said, whatever they want, they got. It's theirs. And they require that you do the God's gift list. And that is, God doesn't work on money. And no matter where you are, God's there. And it's a private thing. Nobody does it for you. You sit mm-hmm. down. And who do you know here? Who has God put here in your life? Who has God put here in your life? Because it's so important for the kids to be able to show other children that God's there. He's right there with you. You you don't need a rally. You don't need a Facebook. It's a God book, and he owns the whole thing. And he's right with you. Now go try something. And when you go try, you have to actively continue to go back to your God's gift list because he's going to give you things that you're never before going to be experienced in. You've never thought you're going to be placed in. And you're never there for you, so get over yourself, Valerie. You're you're there (laughs) for 
his purpose, and his purpose is way greater than you, you go to your list. If you don't find anybody on your list, you go and you ask them, here's what God's doing. Where are we supposed to go? Who is supposed to be given this blessing? And you have to find them, and you have to go to them, and you have to let and trust that God's going to take control. So correct me if I'm wrong, but God's gift list is then basically just a summation of resources and people. Resources of people. (laughs) Resources of people. Resource and education. Who are in and around you, and you're able to, like, talk to. Touch them. You can physically touch them and, and say, I need help. And they're gonna they're gonna be there. So the goal is in care to pull from God's gift list. Yes. And see what can I do with what God's placed yeah. in my yeah. hands. Mm-hmm. Because he's already there. You've just never looked for him. And when I was yelling and screaming at him and asking him why, 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 um, one of the most beautiful things. And I know that you had asked me, would I go back? Would I change anything? My sister and I last year, we went to Central High School and we watched the students. They've they've created their own PowerPoint. They teach about their company. They teach about the eight. They teach about why they want to do what they do all by themselves. And my sister and I were hiding in the balcony, just weeping. It's like, look at God go. (laughs) Isn't he incredible? Oh, my goodness. And he goes without you. Be prepared to be replaced. (laughs) Be prepared to be replaced because you're there for a reason in a season. Don't ever miss your time when they come knocking on your door and learn to walk with him. Because there, you're, there's a purpose. If you've ever wondered what your purpose is, go to your God's gift list because it's right there. He's not going to be automatically in a church pew or in the choir. He's not in the loud. He's in, he, he's in the quiet. And he's been there the whole time. You've just never taken time to look and find him. Yeah, and with God existing totally outside of time and knowing everything, what's beautiful is... You, so you've you have a God's gift list. And yes, I do. It is mighty. It's growing daily. <laughs> and you might have something that you want to accomplish with it. But what I'm hearing is you mm-hmm. are accomplishing so much more than you could have ever set out to accomplish. Because it's not mine. Yeah, because it's not yours. And because you've, like, connected people and empowered people God to has, change. Yeah. And, and it's, it's just if you'll connect with God that way. He's got be prepared for crazy big. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a little boy named Sebastian who was harmed, and he's been placed in and out of the hospital so many times. And we wanted to give him a blessing. We wanted to give him a positive so that he could reflect back on with his family because so much negativity had been in the family. So we wanted to do something incredible. And Lee Willard, I'm giving you the shout out because I love you and you're a beautiful human being. Don't ever, ever, ever lose your, your your incredibleness. And Sebastian lives near an airport, a small grass, a small airport. And I went to go see him, and he couldn't, because he's little, and he's, we would point and go, plane, plane? And he couldn't say plane. And I asked him in the video, I'm like, well, do you, do you like a plane? And we're playing with a, a blue one. He's like, no, I don't like that plane. 
So I'm like, well, I have a friend who has a plane, and I and I spoke it before asking him. I threw him right under the bus. I said, do you want to go on a play run, baby? I know somebody. He's on my list. He just don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, Sebastian ended up taking a video with his aunt, and he said, Mr. Wee, can I fly in your plane, please? Oh, who would say no? Well, not only that, but Lee didn't get back to me. I said, look, we really don't know each other. I know this is going to sound so crazy. This is going to sound nuts. I'm going to send you some stuff. Don't say anything until I send you the last one, because there's a reason why I'm going to ask you something that's really important. Can I, can I send you? I said, sure, whatever, not knowing what was about to hit him. And um, at 2 o'clock in the morning, I get a text message, and it says, send him this. And he is, um, in his video response to um, Sebastian, he has his arm in a sling. And he's like, Sebastian, I broke my wing, but just as soon as it gets fixed, me and you, we're going to go fly. <laughs> he said, I would have been uh, with you sooner, but I was on stage with Keith Urban and Vince Gill. <laughs> just, no, you know. Yeah. I, that sounds and, familiar. I've heard those names, I think. You know, and <laughs> and he took the whole day. Sebastian and he have almost the same birthday. And he waited until his birthday, Lee's birthday. And he took the whole day. And he flew every single person who wanted to fly so that they would have beauty. And don't ever think that you're going to reach for somebody who's huge like Roger Ryan and and think that there's no way this person would talk to me. Don't steal that person's blessing. They're on your list for a reason. Don't manage God. Quit doing that. And I do that a lot. And and that's why I want to have a strong man. That's why I want to have a strong man of faith. That's why I want to have a strong woman of faith. Because they're going to understand what weakness and failure and fear really look like when you're walk, trying to walk with God. And that God's gift list is the base of your walk. And it's not meant for me, and it may not even be meant for care, because it's meant for God. And I never would have that if I hadn't have had my parents. And I, would I do it again? Oh, man, a million times. Hmm. I just think that's a beautiful challenge because so many of us, you know, and I'm sure people that are listening have high and like lofty goals on things we want to accomplish. Yes. But like it's a tangible way to just do. It, it reminds me of Moses so much, like when God told him to part the sea, basically. <laughs> He, got, he was like, what? How? And God just basically said, what's in your hand? Mm -hmm. And it was the, the rod. And so he put the rod down and God parted the sea. And but he already have, had the place. He already had it the whole time. Yeah, exactly. And well, so. And we all do. And I think some of our lofty goals that we have for ourselves, um, sometimes I forget that I'm limiting God to the earth. When I'm not trying to have a lofty place on earth, I'm trying to have a lofty place with him in heaven. And I don't want to take just myself. When I go, I want 
thousands more yeah. to get to know him and get to have what we have. And it's, it's a, it, it, I know that child abuse is a crappy t- topic, but man, do I love it. I love it. I get excited. Because there's hope. Oh, my gosh. These yeah, if parents, it turns into a program like this. Well, you know, the parents, some of the parents who have had a hand in their child dying would never, ever believe that they would come out and be seen or talk. But you know what? When When you will love them the way God loves you and you show them what God's doing, they won't shun away they won't hide they'll actually run to you so be prepared for that crazy because that's a whole new level um sounds like it yeah because they want they want us to go into a prison up in in lake huron michigan and talk to the women in prison because a lot of those women they say have have gone through these same issues and they're like Oh, my word, care is in prison. God is in prison. You know what? Yeah, he is. And there's a lot of beauty in there, too. We just never bothered to look for him. Um, well, I want to I'd like to close, I think, with this question. Um, given the opportunity and you already do this a lot, but hopefully this is going to get to some ears that you wouldn't necessarily get to talk to. Um, if you could say something to a kid, somebody that's not an adult yet, somebody that still isn't given like a legal voice the way that maybe they ought to be, mm-hmm. if they're listening and have experienced some or something different than what you have, what would you say to them? What's your first piece of advice? And I, I want to get here not only to, okay, we'll go to a website and do this practical mm-hmm. thing, but what would you say to them about what God sees and who he is and what he's done in you and what he wants to do in them, you know? Well, you just answered the question. Um, they you, I'm going to take Dee Dee. Because Dee Dee is Deandra, mm-hmm. um, and she goes by Dee Dee. Dee Dee says it best. She's, she said, I never believed that I could use my voice in such a way as a kid that it would impact whether a man spent the rest of his life in prison. But I did, and he is, and I'm just a kid. And it doesn't take a whole lot of effort. So if one child can do it, imagine. And here's another thing. For kids who think they can't do anything, walk into your school. Try Cookville High School, where Ifoma Ike is from. Ifoma was over 3,000 students in one building. Tell me kids aren't mighty. They are very, very mighty. And there's a lot you can do with just you and two friends. I mean, that's it. That's all you got to have is you and a couple friends. Um, you don't go to a website and learn. You go to a website and you ask Bailey, Bailey, I want to do this. Will you come teach me? And Bailey will come teach you. She will teach you because that's what she's called to do while she's also becoming a criminal psychologist <laughs> up Man. at the University of Chattanooga. What is the best way? for anybody to get in contact with you? Well, they, they, you can go to Capture Hope, 
because one of the things that we do is we we link up with others um, because I never want to miss one. That's that's one of the problems that we have is that we are so caught up in ourselves that we don't realize that we're all a part of a fishing net. Um, and we are fishers of men, not fishers of self. Um, and when you give away yourself, you learn how to serve with the Lord. And if Trust me, if he's not blessing you now, but he's blessing one of your friends, go run and stand next to them because mm-hmm. it will eventually rain on you, too. <laughs> well, it's all good. <laughs> and so you can go to Capture Hope. Um, you can listen to this podcast and find me. You can go to uh, the kids. They have a website set up. It's called um, Because We Care, C-A-A-R-E, all one word, squished dot org uh, when you email the children have that email set up to their cell phones they do not communicate the way we do as adults there's a lot that kids do that totally blow my mind um <laughs> which i'm learning they're teaching me and i'm so excited um but they will have uh there's a, a mass group of them they all get the email notification, um, and there will be a student who will reach out to you within 2.7 seconds of Fu Manchu. It'll be scary <laughs> because they're so excited. Um, you can go to YouTube and put in my name, Valerie Watley. You can find me there. Um, you, they set up an Instagram account, but I don't really do Instagram. <laughs> they have a Twitter. They Big have surprise. an Instagram. They have they have everything. Um, because I don't want you to come and find me. I want you to come and find them. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Valerie. Thank no. you for talking with us. Thank you for just being vulnerable and letting God use you to change lives. Yeah. And, uh I mean, we just want to thank everyone for listening uh, to the podcast today. We want to remind you, subscribe uh, so you can get any future episodes. Rate and review our podcast. And if you have any ideas for future podcast uh, stories, uh, we would like to hear from you. And send us an email at wearecapturehope at gmail.com. And uh, we also are going to include all the information about care and to link up with the kids and whether you're a kid who needs help putting a case together, whether you're a kid who wants to start care in your school, or if you're an adult that wants to be available as a resource, uh, as a resource to the kids that need them. Um, all of that will be in the podcast episode and on the uh, website where we list the episodes as well. Be um, prepared, though. If you're an adult who wants access to children, you will be vetted by law enforcement um, because we um, are learning and we're very smart. And if you think you're going to get past me, you got another thing coming. Hey, we going to find you. <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought we said we weren't going to sing on this podcast. Um, no, seriously. Um, and I also want to remind you, I, I want to do this at the end of every podcast to just let you know that if you are hurting and you are broken and if you feel lonely, that there is a Savior who loves you. He has a name and it's Jesus. And uh, I never want to, like, get through an episode without really driving that point home because Valerie's story, as well as mine and Josh's stories and the people that we're going to interview in the future, like, they only happen because— We serve a God who is real, who is present. Um, It's not just psychology. It's not just doing good things. Like we serve a God who redeems and he does miracles and changes things. So um, you can also reach us at that 
same email address. We are capturehope at gmail.com. Um, if you want to reach out and just share with us, um, we're not counselors. We're not, um, you know, licensed therapists. We're just friends and we want to share the story of how God is changing things. And so um, stay tuned for our next episode and thanks for listening. God bless. Peace. Thank you for joining us today. Rebecca and I believe that these stories are not just for other people, but you. If you call on the name of Jesus, he is quick to respond. Ask for his forgiveness and restoration, and we believe that you can move forward in change and power in the arms of a loving Savior. We would love to hear how this episode impacted you, or if you would like to share an incredible testimony, please check us out on Instagram at WeAreCaptureHope or email us at wearecapturehope at gmail.com. Please comment and rate the podcast on iTunes and wherever fine audio is distributed. Thank you, and God bless.